Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nautical Knowledge and Nonsense. You know how sometimes you just meet people and you just have an instant rapport with them? I feel like that's what happened with me and Bill here in this interview. This was actually my second time talking to him in my whole life, and it's really funny, I think. it's I really enjoyed doing this interview. I think Bill did too. I think it really comes across. So I hope you folks do as well. Bill is a nuclear ballistic missile submarine chief. And I learned an awful lot in, in this. I thought I knew about nuclear ballistic submarines and life on a submarine. I was wrong. I, I learned quite a bit. And yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun chatting with Bill, swapping stories. It felt like talking to an old shipmate. I hope you enjoy this interview with Bill Larson, U.S. Navy nuclear ballistic missile submarine chief and navigator. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Bill, for, for doing this, for doing this interview. Uh, I, I got to tell people that, like, so I was I was working at the bar, and I was just sitting there thinking to myself, like, man, I really would love it if I could interview, uh, like, a submariner, ideally on a nuclear submarine. And I like to learn something about the homeless, you know, issue in the area I live in. And all of a sudden, Bill just pops in. You're like, wow, like both subjects covered. Yeah, I'm sort of a weird combination that way. <laughs> so, so you worked. Well, tell us about, uh, let, let, I guess we start with your Navy career. So, so tell us about um, what, what types of subs you worked on. So I was on three subs. They were all SSBNs. Um, my first sub was the USS Nevada. So SSBN stands for it's a subsurface ballistic missile nuclear submarine. Right. So yeah, <laughs> just, just in and, case, yeah, yeah, and it's and uh, they're the Ohio class because the first one was the USS Ohio, and so I got into the Navy knowing I wanted to go subs because I knew a lot of guys who worked at Vermont Yankee Nuclear Power Plant, and they were like, "All right, go subs, but don't go nuke." They because their lives were miserable as nukes on on submarines and they there's a reason that nukes get big reenlistment bonuses and sign on bonuses it's because those guys are just dragged through the dirt all the time you know the their their training is super stressful it's all the time and it as it ought to be because they're messing with the nuclear power plant and you really need to know what you're doing and that's like a one of those hundred percent accuracy jobs you can't be mostly right most of the time or else bad things happen so they said don't go nuke but they said go sub so i i, I put in for that and um i was lucky enough to get my choice of orders and i did tours on three nuclear subs i uh, did 14 uh nuclear uh deterrent patrols um over the course of my 21 years in the navy and um yeah it was it was different than it is now it was People didn't have personnel or personal electronic devices. You didn't have cell phones. You didn't have any of that. So when in your downtime, you're underway for 90 days. When you're not on watch, you're drilling or you're qualifying or learning. But in the spare time, you're playing cards with each other. And you're you're watching movies together. And you're doing stuff as a crew and getting to know people. I mean, you play everything. You know, poker, euchre spades, hearts, every single kind of card game you could have, cribbage, um, and everybody does it all together. 
it was really sad. I was almost glad I was getting out toward the end because the proliferation of personal devices came on. Then people are watching their own movies, playing games, and all off in their separate areas. So uh, camaraderie was dying <laughs> due to yeah. electronics. Now, you were saying that your friends warned you against nuclear, but you ended up working on a nuclear sub. Were they saying there's like working on the power plant aspect right. of it? Yeah, because okay. you know, you've got all your different rates. And so you, I was a navigation electronics technician. So I was a Navi T and you got your sonar men, your radar men, your machinist mate, your torpedo men, your uh, missile, uh, um, people who work in the missile department. But then you have your nukes who work in the power plant. And those guys are always training all the time. The, the testing in the classes, there's a high attrition rate. So even if you test it in, you fail out. Um, and then those guys were always, always training. All of us were training, but they, they took it to a different degree in the, in the aft end of the ship or the boat. We don't call them ships. <laughs> and so you know, I was like, oh, okay. Johan's on tall ships. So I've got ships on the brain. But yeah, when you talk about submarines, you don't call them ships. A submarine is a boat. <laughs> All right. Um, and when I was younger in the Navy and we'd take, I had relatives come out and we would drive by Bremerton, the naval shipyard, and they'd say, oh, what kind of boat is that? Or what kind of ship is that? I was like, well, that's a two torpedo target. <laughs> I was like, that little one, that's only a one torpedo target. Because we had Mark 48s. And wow. so they, they packed a pretty big punch. And, you know, so we were just familiar with for the most part, how many torpedoes it would take to sink something, not really so much what each one was. <laughs> now, now, obviously, we, we can't talk about anything top secret mm-hmm. here or, or anything like that. Um, that, that, that must be you know, tricky. That must, what, what is that like? Like, having, just knowing that there's certain facts that you're not allowed to share, or, or how is there like a list of like, these are the, the red things you cannot talk about, the reactor? Well, yeah, there, and there's so many. So everybody who's on a suit, um, uh, an SSBN, mm-hmm. The minimum clearance is secret. You have to, everybody on the crew, uh, from, from the cooks to the machinist mates to anybody who's doing anything to the SKs, uh, to the corpsmen, all have to have a secret clearance. But then officers and anyone working in navigation has to have a top secret clearance. And so there's a lot that you can't tell people. There were, I'd say, about 80% of the crew wouldn't even know where they were for that. 80 or 90 day patrol because we would go out we would go under and unless you had a need to know you didn't know so we'd go out for 80 days we'd come back and if people um people's families asked them where were you 80 percent of the crew couldn't tell them because they just didn't know wow. <laughs> you know wow. you were one of the officers i was i was a chief but i was in navigation and so our job was to constantly feed our current position to the missiles if that information isn't getting down there because we're firing ballistic missiles from under water. So if you, they don't know exactly where we are and how we're oriented, you can't hit your target. Yeah, not at all. You know, Jeez. It's like put a blindfold on, spin you around three times. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So our job, if we weren't doing it, we weren't going to be able to launch missiles. But- yeah, that, that was the obvious question, but I, I, that also has an obvious answer. So, yeah, yeah. yeah you're not going to fire if you don't know where the, where the heck you're firing. So. You know, I will tell you, you know, about right. missiles and stuff, you know, people always joke, oh, you know, our job is to put, you know, warheads on foreheads. You know, we're highly accurate. And, you know, from thousands of miles away, mm-hmm. we could put a nuclear missile not only in the ballpark, but probably onto the pitcher's mound. That's wow. how accurate it could be. But 
when I was in school, I had a test question. I was in um, guided missile school in Damneck, Virginia. And one of the questions on the test is, if you receive an EAM, which is an emergency action message that is authorizing you to release all your missiles and you release them and everyone hits the target, have you completed your mission? And the answer was no, because the mission of a nuclear submarine is deterrence. So if we have to launch, we have failed because we're obviously not a first strike platform. So the idea is if we get the order to launch, we have failed to deter someone else and we're launching in retaliation. So it was... So that that, that actually answers one of, one of the other questions I had in the back of my head, which is how... How aware were you of the politics, or maybe not the politics, the uh, the policies, like the kind of international relations sort of, uh, was there an understanding on the ship going in? But obviously, I mean, you are the spearhead of the policy. You are the, you know, so in that sense, yeah, like mm-hmm. that's a great, great test question. Yeah. <laughs> and that's fascinating. I, it's good, a good attitude to have, I'd say. Like, my daughter just uh, interviewed me about 9-11, mm-hmm. and it was, one, it was one of those things like, where were you on 9-11? And I was like, well, actually, interesting story about that. <laughs> we were out at sea, and we pulled in on September 10th. And so September 10th of that year, we pull in. Two-thirds of the crew gets to go home. One-third stays on board to stand watch and, you know, get ready uh, to break everything down for the refit period. So I was on the third of the crew that was on board. And the next morning... So somebody comes in, they're like, did you hear about the plane that hit the Twin Towers? And I'm waiting for the punchline because it's like, oh, did you hear about the guy who walked into a bar? You know, (laughs) and and they're like, no. And right after that, we heard about the second one. And so, again, you got to think about the time frame. You know, this is 2001. We don't have Internet on board. We don't even have a TV on board. We just pulled in and moored that night. So I'm just getting information as people are coming in. And the next thing you know, so the... The idea that next morning is the two other two-thirds of the crew are going to come back. We're going to do a turnover. And then those of us who spent the night on the, the boat before, we're going to get to go home. Well, not everybody is back on board yet. And then they lock the base down because they're like, we're under attack. And then we get the order, get underway with what you've got. Wow. What, so, like, with what crew you have. What crew, with what, what provisions supplies you have. and everything. Oh. We had just pulled in the night before and they're like, you're a high-value target. And you might be launching nuclear weapons soon. So they, it was like, get that high-value target out and under water so that you're not found and be prepared to launch. And so I will tell you, this the first time in uh, a lot of years being on submarines, we were ready to feel the, um, the deck flex beneath our feet as we launched nuclear weapons. And we went down. We are in a total news blackout. We're not getting any news other than that we've been attacked Jeez. and uh, we had to get out and get ready to go. So I think my uh, daughter's um, interview turned a little bit darker than they thought it was going to. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, and and you guys, I mean, for, for a submarine, especially, as you said, a high value target, you know, to call yourself that, that must be a fascinating thing to constantly be doing. Oh, I'm a target. Like... <laughs> It's so ironic because you also have more firepower that's ever been released in all of human history on board. And yet, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's this interesting dichotomy there. But because I'm assuming most of the systems are passive, like your sonar is probably relatively passive. Yeah. Your, 
you're you're receiving information. You're not necessarily sending out information. No, we've got a vast sonar sensing array all over the boat, so we yeah. can sense from every direction up, down, and um, yeah, you're. It's not like in the movies where you're sending out pings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can think of no better way to. Like, hey, here we are. <laughs> exactly, Marco. <laughs> and one of the reasons that we're such a high value target is if so. An SSBN has the capability of carrying up to 24 missiles. Each one of those missiles has the capability of carrying eight independently targeted nuclear warheads. Mm -hmm. So you fire one missile, you can hit eight targets, and we can do that 24 times. Uh, the move, and the information I'm sharing with you is commonly available. So I'm yeah. Not <laughs> uh, yeah. But if our if so if our submarine was fully loaded with that complement of weapons, it would be. That submarine would be the third largest nuclear power in the world. So it would go the United States, then Russia, then our submarine. No other country in the world has the nuclear capabilities of even just one of our submarines other than us and Russia. Wow. But China's obviously almost Yeah, I mean, and that might have changed, well, but was that was say, yeah. back uh, when I was in, that was the... Uh, That's incredible. Those were the numbers. It, like I said, China might have uh, surpassed that now. I don't know what they've done since I got out. I, I retired in 2012. 2012, yeah. They have definitely expanded their, their nuclear program. I remember reading... Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of General, uh, General uh, Jim Mattis. Mm -hmm. He's a very interesting fellow. And yeah, so I read, um, I read his report to the the Trump administration, but it's interesting reading prior to that. Like if you look up news articles about him and he, like he was going in, he's like, Oh yeah, we got to get rid of these weapons and oh yeah. You know, like, like he was very, and, and he's read history. I mean, he mm -hmm. studies it. He doesn't read it. He studies history. Like they called him the warrior monk. Like he literally dedicated his life to mm -hmm. the Marine Corps, to the military. It was actually fascinating watching. I mean, I, I listened to all probably 20 minutes of <laughs> like, I don't really listen to presidents anymore. I'm kind of done with it. <laughs> Uh, but but I did listen because I I read all all the news was was saying how oh Trump's administration they were just all basically kissing his butt you know when you when he had his a little um, I forget it was Joint Chief of Staff I think mm -hmm. meeting and so I was like ah oh, I'm I'm curious so I watched it and they were right and they were wrong like they were correct in that yeah pretty much almost everybody did except for two people both were military mm -hmm. one I forget who the guy was but he. He didn't. Uh, he didn't kiss Trump's butt, but he he uh, tooted his own horn. I mean, he was like, "I'm so great, rah rah," uh, and I'm paraphrasing big time. <laughs> but I do recall that, and it was only Jim Mattis that did not do either of those things. Yeah, he did not kiss Trump's butt, nor did he toot his own horn. He basically said, "Sir, it's an honor to be serving the." And again, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like it's an honor to be serving the, you know, the the uh, representing the men and women of the United States military. Well, that was one of the, he was one of the few people that Trump allowed in his inner circle that actually was comfortable in his own skin and knowledge. Yeah, which is so important. I mean, any I mean, I'm, we're going to talk about leadership, I'm sure, at some point <laughs> in, in, in this conversation. But it's so important as a leader to, yeah, to have people like that around you that, that know what they're doing, that are willing to talk to you, but mm -hmm. but also you know respect the chain of command so things don't fall apart either. It's like it's this wonderful balance when when done right, it's great. But also. Especially, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about navigation and how important that is and all the moving parts. And you don't want to surround yourself with, yes, I mean, you want to surround yourself with people who are willing to throw up the red flag and say, hey, 
Is anyone else paying attention to this? Because yeah. if you're the only one and you're afraid to say something, it gets bad in a hurry. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> for sure. You know, especially with the submarine, you just want to talk about something that you, it's not easy to maneuver. We've got a 36-foot draft. A uh, An aircraft carrier's draft is only one foot deeper than ours. That's at the surface. Yeah, so Jeez. when we're on the surface, 36 feet of the submarine, most of it is underneath the water, and it's a round hull. Yeah. And so you get us up to speed, you're restricting your ability to maneuver, you've got a deep draft, and so nothing happens in a hurry. So when you're navigating, it's all got to be long-term distance down the road, what's other people doing, and, and what are our options, um, because... You can't turn on a dime, and you can't uh, react quickly because the, you can, but the boat's not going to. <laughs> Gosh, I thought it was bad enough being on a, a ship where it's like, oh, if the ship catch on fire, now you're going in the water. But for you guys, it's like, oh, and then you're dealing the with surface. You're not going in the water. Like, yeah, you're going in the water in the worst way possible. You're dealing with sailboats and uh, fishing boats while they're engaged in fishing, who are used to having the right of way. Yeah, oh, you that's know, but we're in a channel and we're on the surface for hours because we so we leave Banger, we got to go through the Hood Canal Bridge, which is an operation in itself every time, and then you're transiting out up the Straits, out the Straits of Juan de Fuca, and then you're going out a little bit into the open ocean before you dive. So all that is on the surface. You're super vulnerable. You very you're not very maneuverable and then you got all these yahoos thinking that they've got the right of way it's like it's not going to happen and i've i've watched a uh, sailboat come across our bow when we came under the uh, golden gate bridge one time it's like we're we can't move and you're getting too close and you know they their sail smacked the water because they came across our bow and they righted themselves but uh it was. Uh, this is obviously pre nine eleven. Oh yeah, there's no all, way anything's allowed. Yeah, yeah this is all way nine eleven. Uh, okay. Pre nine eleven. When so when we went out after we got that mobilization order, mm -hmm. when we came back, we didn't even recognize the pier. They had put in these um, these gates mm -hmm. that uh, will stop a, a boat. They'll expand and and then there were all these patrol boats. All this stuff was completely different. The uh, on the water. On the pier side, it was it was surreal because we were only out about a week and a half, two weeks before they're okay, it's stable enough, you can come back. Um, and in that time, it was like the whole world and our and our waterfront changed, and we couldn't recognize it when we pulled in. Everything everything was different. Yeah. Well, sort of speaking of world change, all that, just to, to bring back to Jim Maddox, because I, I mm -hmm. kind of fully finished my thought there, but. Uh, yeah, it was fascinating how he he was not. He just said like we have to. So he changed his mind. He like he listened to all the experts, listened to all the people, read read what he could. He's like, you know, we just have to deal with the world the way it is, not the mm -hmm. way we want it to be. And and I don't know. I'd be very curious to know the timeline of all this stuff because I know we have nuclear tipped uh, cruise missiles, mm -hmm. and that was kind of. I mean, it's, it's so hard to know who who really broke which treaty first, and I'm sure there's, I'm sure somebody must academically be able to be like, we did it first, or the Russians did, or the Chinese. Mm -hmm. But it's like we're building all these. I don't know. It's 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 kind of scary times right now. Like we got a lot of weapons that don't quite fit into 
the quite fit in the triad anymore. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's a huge concern, right? Is deterrence. And then it's just baby stepping a nuclear war. Like, <laughs> well, and now you look at what's happening now and the rhetoric that's coming out of Russia with the way yeah. they're saying, we're not bluffing. Right. And so, and there's, I love the fact that people are saying, oh, you know, it's good. And there's a, a nuclear, a limited nuclear war can be fought. There's no such thing. Yeah. As a limited nuclear war. And if it starts, it's going to escalate really fast. <laughs> I'm, I'm no political genius, but it, to call something a limited nuclear war is kind of an oxymoron. Yeah. It's, yeah, especially, oh man, if everybody, I mean, I just watch it with my little boys. Like, you know, like, oh, I want that toy. The kid takes yeah. the toy. Oh, this one, you know, next thing you know, they're like biting and scratching and hitting each other. It's like, guys, stop. you know, they, they got a lot better now. But, mm-hmm. but man, yeah, there's that lack of impulse control. And I don't know, not to say that our leaders or states are all like that, but some are more like that than others. <laughs> yeah. And the idea that we can draw down and other people would follow suit, it's, it looks good on paper. But yeah. the reality is, it's probably probably wouldn't happen, and then we would be in a weakened state. And well, that's that's the biggest thing I've seen, and, and I think everybody's I hope is waking up to it. Is that like there's if there's a vacuum, it gets filled. Mm-hmm. You know, if we show weakness, it gets filled. Like it just does. You know, I, oh man, I remember we had this professor, and it was uh, he had this lecture on it was a lecture series on on peace. You know, I was I was curious. I'd studied international relations, and it was free, so you just go. Mm-hmm. So I went to a couple of them, but man, the one the one it was a journalist, and right off the bat, he just you know, shows a picture of George Bush. He's like, "So I'm glad this Yahoo's going to be gone." I'm like, well, I, "I didn't come here for like like I'm not arguing against that necessarily, but I'm like, that's not what I came here for. I wanted mm-hmm. to learn about peace." And so, but his whole thing was like, "Yeah, we need to get rid of all of our military bases abroad, and the only reason we have them is for trade or some some other nonsensical thing." I'm like, "You literally have no idea about anything." Like, like this, yeah. this guy had no clue. He literally said, "We should get rid of all of our foreign bases." It's like, well, okay, so you think they're the whole world's just going to be like, yay. Like, 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 I mean, yeah, there'd be such dire consequences to that. And, and look at the role that NATO's playing now in keeping Russia in check. If we said, Oh, you know, let's let them figure it out on their own. This conflict would have been over already and it would have been in Russia's favor. And, the, ramif- the long-term ramifications for that for yeah. all of Europe and all of NATO and eventually us too. I mean, they're they're impacting um, oil and gas prices. They're impacting a shortage of food all over the world. I mean, just this one conflict has got long-reaching uh, and far-reaching implications in almost every part of the world in one significant way or another, whether it's food, whether it's gas and oil, or whether it's security. I'm trying to tie it back into subs. Hard time. <laughs> well, and, you know, it, it goes back to subs being a nuclear deterrent. If we didn't have them, it would embolden others to make more claims or make more steps forward. You know, the, one of the we had we had two sayings um, that would describe our mission, and one of them was five knots to nowhere. Because it's just be out there, you know, punching holes in the ocean, staying hidden. Uh-huh. Um, and the, that ties into the other one, which is hide with pride. You know, if a fast attack hears a, a sound in the water, they go chase it and they get sound signatures on it and they gather data. We hear a sound. We go the other way. 
is because we don't want to be found. We don't want anyone to know where any of our patrol areas are. Um, so it was literally hide with pride. Our, and that's the deterrent. Nobody knows where the counter-strike is going to come from. Mm-hmm. So if they were to launch the counter, and even if they were to hit every land-based nuke that we have and just lay that part of triad to waste there's no way that they know where the submarine the submarine force is and they can launch a devastating counter-strike from anywhere in the open ocean without having to surface yeah you don't surface when you when you launch oh there's so many detailed questions (laughs) i want to ask you that i know we probably can't tell you the answer to so like like oh man, how how far can a sub drift? How how quickly can you shut off your engine if you need to silence it? How quick like like how how deep do you have to be? Like all, all these questions. Where some I'm sure there are answers out there, but well, our subs run silent, um, so silent at they run silent at twenty knots, as silent at twenty knots as the old submarines used to run at six. So a Trident. Um, submarine is the most quiet submarine in the world. By old, do you mean like the diesels in World War II? No, I mean like the previous iterations of nuclear subs oh, okay. and the okay. nuclear fast attacks. And, My understanding is diesel subs are as quiet oh, yeah. as they get. They're electric, right? Well, they're well, they're quiet when they've got their engines turned off. Yeah. Uh, so when they're running on electric, but the problem with the old diesel subs is the, the batteries can only run it for so long they were going to have to run that diesel. Well, and is it just a question of scale? Is that why they're more quiet? Because like... Like a nuclear reactor doesn't produce any... What, what sound is it producing? Well, the nuclear reactor doesn't produce any sound, but all yeah. the decks on a submarine are floating. Are floating decks. So everything is attached to the wall via rubber mounts. So okay. it all moves and flexes. So there's nothing solidly attached to the bulkheads on, a, on an SSBN. Oh, wow. So... Um, there, that's sound dampening right there. The, uh, the screw, every blade on the screw is designed and is a different shape. It's not like a uniform screw like you would see on the back of a boat or a ship. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we're in dry dock, it gets covered because it's highly classified. Yeah. Um, and it's designed to be absolutely silent, whether you're doing five knots to nowhere or whether you're doing 20 knots. Uh, and I can say 20 knots at 800 feet because Jane's fighting ship says we can go 800 feet. Okay, well, there we go. 800 feet, I'm sure. I can neither confirm nor deny that I've been below that. There's <laughs> <laughs> um, mind that scene in this boat where they're watching that red line. It's just getting worse and worse. It's yeah, so yeah. classic. <laughs> and so, and then if we, if we need to go, if we are getting ready to launch missiles or doing drills where we're getting ready to launch missiles or if there's something in the area that we feel could detect us then you run ultra quiet and um, ultra quiet puts everybody in the rack who's not staying and watch and you do nothing you secure a whole bunch of operations that even have the possibility of making any noise and we're really undetectable we used to run we used to run uh, drills with the p3s uh, before they had the P-8s out here. P- so uh, the P-3s out of NASWI. Uh, so the Naval Air Station would be island. And so that was the anti-submarine warfare platform. So they'd go out and, you know, they could drop sonar buoys and they're yeah. looking. Um, so these are the propeller aircraft or? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so they'd have a whole crew on there and their job, you know, on their mission would be to find us. And we would be limited to a box in the ocean. So they knew it at least a particular area that we would be in, we'd have to put up a periscope or a multifunction mass, which is even bigger, and we'd have to make some noise, and they still couldn't find us. Wow. They, 
with my job. I had to go to the Pentagon a while back. And I was there with some people who didn't have a lot of exposure to the military. And they were like, ooh, the Pentagon. And the, and the Pentagon is pretty impressive, you know. Um, but we get there and there's these commanders and captains. And one of them was like, oh, you know, I was on a P3. And I said to him, I said, oh, I'm really sorry that, you know, I frustrated you for so many years. And the people who were with me were like, what did you just say to this guy? And he's like, he's like, oh, you were on the list. Of, you were on trying to I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we you, you instantly have that camaraderie because, you know, and they know. But people who weren't who were in our party who had no military experience, they were like, he just insulted that guy. I was like, no, I didn't. And so, you know, it's all in good fun. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's hilarious. That's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, we'd uh, have to throw up a bunch of masks because they had very good um, detection devices where they they were supposed to be able to pick up, you know, a periscope or a multifunction mast uh, out of the water. But a lot of times we wind up throwing everything up we had in order to give them a signature that they could actually find. Oh my and gosh. we would do we would do war games with uh, surface ships and we would send them pictures that we got where we could uh, through the periscope and you could see people's faces on the ships and they didn't know we were there and we were like right up their butts you know oh, with the periscope wow. out of the water taking pictures and then send them like him yeah <laughs> oh my gosh that's, that's... <laughs> I will tell you though when I first got on subs I came in the Navy in 91 like, and I had to do like almost two years of school. So you got to do, um, you got to do your basic submarine school at a Groton. I went to Damneck, um, Virginia for guided missile school. And then you go to basic electronic school and then you go to advanced electronics. So you're in school for like a year and a half before you even get to step foot on a submarine. So it was like 93 when I got on my first sub, but we were told, uh, that basically the Russian Akula class submarines uh, and some of their others had a standing order that if they did find us out in the water, take the shot. Wait, this is during the Cold War. Yeah. And so it was like, because nobody's communicating with anyone, we're not sending communications back to our base. They're not sending communications back to theirs. So the understanding was they had a standing order that if they found a trident submarine take the shot really jeez just this is what you were told at, at school or this is what we, I, when I was on this, when I got to my first sub man and then there were a couple times where they were fast attack Russian subs that were detected just outside of the straits and so they were waiting for us to come out so they can get sound signatures and stuff so then we'd have fast attacks come up to harass them and make a whole bunch of noise so that <laughs> Speaking so, of which. Yeah, so that we can get out undetected. I'm not that quiet anymore. <laughs> but, uh, wow. So there was, a, there was a lot of cat and mouse stuff like yeah. that going on, um, you know, years ago. I don't know to the extent that that happens now, but. Yeah. Well, we had so, so many questions, so many ideas. I just, this always happens. I got I to admit, though, I have a, um, I have a soft spot for the typhoon class Russian subs because mm-hmm. I had a model as a kid I, I like this model submarine that was mm-hmm. typhoon class and and I knew it was the biggest sub in the world oh, yeah. and I, I was just like well this looks really cool oh, yeah, <laughs> so, they're, they're massive they're monstrous 
but they're not as quiet as we are. Mm. <laughs> you know, we, that is our claim to fame. You know, the tridents are, are the quietest things out there. Wow. And, uh, and when we rig for ultra quiet, you know, you're not going to find us. Our own people aren't going to find us. I'm trying to remember when the Kursk, the, I, I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly, the, the Kursk that went down, the mm-hmm. Russian sub, um, was it, was it a ballistic missile submarine or was it a, an attack submarine? I honestly don't remember. I think it was a, an attack, but don't quote me on that. Okay. Uh, I was we'll already to look at out by then. But, um, yeah, it's funny because we have the the escape hatches mm-hmm. and all that built in uh, to the Trident subs, but we basically said those are put in for politicians and parents uh, <laughs> because where we're patrolling, if we go down, yeah. you're not using that. <laughs> no, and then, well... I mean, but were the, were the hatches such that you could get, like, a small submersible team to, to like latch onto it and pull you up is there any chance of that happening there when, with the ones that have been modified uh, with the for the the smaller missiles now and to deliver SEAL teams there have been some modifications where they can do stuff like that but basically the escape hatches on the, the tridents were there so that you can fill those and pressurize them and then open and get out that way and then they'd reseal it drain it and but you can only be in so many feet of water no, yeah yeah and so and you know like where the Kursk was if they had something functioning like that they might have been able to do that because uh, they sank in shallow water um, but you know tridents for the most part we're out in the open ocean yeah um, with hundreds thousands of feet below us and uh, even something with a hull that's made of HY-80, when you get deep enough, it just crushes like a Jeez. beer can. Yeah, I remember. It's, it's fascinating to be on the West Coast and just how the mountains and hills just go straight down the water and down, like real deep. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, on the East Coast, and it's like, oh, this is why we have, you got to dump your sewage three miles out because it's like, it's, it's 30 feet, mm-hmm. like a long time. Yeah. You know, you're just like, wow. And then uh, the Bahamas, that was great because it was always 30 feet of water or less. So, you're, you know, 35 feet, maybe even less. You can, mm-hmm. It's crystal clear. So you could always just, like, you need to anchor. You're just like, oh, well, there's a rock there. Better not be. You know, yeah. like, but, but yeah, yeah, our, our, the West Coast Pacific. And Whoa. one of my, my last job uh, when I was on subs, I was a diving officer of the watch when we were underway. And so you're responsible for maintaining depth and speed and, and course and all that. And so if you have to come up, when you're in such deep water, there are water layers yeah. or, or temperature layers. And when you're coming up, sometimes it's and you have to break through that. It's almost like breaking through a physical barrier because the the water temperature changes and your buoyancy changes. And so when you're coming up, all of a sudden you're coming up and you're stuck and you're stuck and you're stuck. And then you got to punch through this temperature layer to get through it. It's it's really a strange phenomenon. People things that people don't think about yeah. salinity and temperature affect your buoyancy. Yeah. And when you have to get to periscope depth. That's at about 78 to 82 feet. And you have to maintain that because you don't want to broach because now you can be seen um, via satellite. But you don't want the periscope to keep dipping because you have to copy the broadcast. And that's the only way you're getting it. So you're in rough seas and you're bobbing around like a cork and you're flooding water on and you're pumping water off. And because and you're trying to maintain speed. so, it was, uh, so standard watch on a submarine is hours and hours and hours of boredom, followed by 
minutes of pure terror because yeah. <laughs> you're trying not to broach and you're trying to do all these things in a really short period of time. God, you can't see anything. I mean, it's all just electronic, right? I mean, except for the periscope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of times you're coming up at night, so you're. I'm sure you've been rigged for red before. Oh, always, yeah. So you can't see anything because you certainly don't want any light shooting out of the periscope because now you're telling everybody for miles where you are. That's insane to me to think that, that, like, wow. Yeah, so you have to rig for red, which is almost pitch black. It takes quite a while for your eyes to get adjusted because yeah. once you take your um, face away from that periscope, now light can travel up and out. So it's two-way, those mirrors. <laughs> oh, my yeah. gosh. I can't believe they had to develop some sort of, like, a contact thing where, like, no contact. Instant, yeah. You know, <laughs> shutter or something. So... Well, then obviously there are some conditions where you cannot surface because you can have swells, I mean, 60 feet or more. You obviously can't surface in that. Or you can't have a periscope at that. Right. And you're probably not going to see anything anyway. But but you're receiving transmissions. It's not about... Right. We're receiving transmissions. seeing anything at that um, point. And this was back... I was back in the day where you didn't get email or anything like that. So when you were out there, people would say, oh, what's it like being out on a submarine for 90 days? Like, well, it's like you're, you're dead as far as your life back home because you're not getting mail you weren't getting emails your loved ones can send what they called a family gram that's 40 words and they would write it out and they would give it to a crew that was state you know on shore so they would read it then they would type it out and they would send it over then the radio men on the boat would read it then they'd send it to the XO because his job was to make sure you weren't getting any bad news right in that 40 words because there's nothing you can do about it <laughs> so all these people got to read it and then you got your family gram and you got one of those about every two weeks and it was 40 words from home it must have some great haikus you know I could just yeah and, and it was all pretty generic oh yeah. love you miss you blah 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 you know there's not much you can say in 40 words but they didn't want people getting uh, family gram saying I want a divorce <laughs> You know, somebody, and now you've got two more months underway and you can't do anything about it. So, like, those had to get filtered out. Wow. Yeah. Well, well. all right. Let's let's go. There are a few rabbit holes I want to go down with okay. you. Um, that is one of them. Like, how, how do you keep people sane and, and happy? And, I mean, I, I the most recent interview I did was with a, a sailor who was on a destroyer. Mm-hmm. For four months, you know, quarantined. But but even then, they were stopping in ports, and and but it was it was still they're under quarantine. Yeah, and it was very very stressful for the crew. But you you're three months underway or more. Like like that's yeah. My longest uh, patrol was 107 days. Wow. So how did 107? All right. So how did um, well? And you you kind of talked about it a little bit. Where like you said, a lot of card games, a lot of watching movies together. There's a lot of camaraderie in, in those things. There, so there's some camaraderie, mm-hmm. but when the hatches close and the ship and the and the boat dives and we're below the surface, it changes. Every everybody's walls go up. Now the other thing is it's an it was all male crews uh-huh. back then, and a typical crew on a submarine is 160 to 180 people. A ballistic missile submarine is 563 feet long by about 40 feet wide. So just think of the, the math. 563 feet long, 40 feet wide, 160 individuals. There's not a lot of personal space. Yeah. Um, the um, the enlisted bunk rooms, there's nine men to a bunk, and they're 
literally in between the the missile tubes. Was there hot bunking? Or for on Trident subs there really wasn't that unless we sometimes they would bring out extra people, midshipmen or if you bring out a lot of trainees every once in a while, but that was one of the things on Tridents is that we didn't hot rack, okay. which which was good. But um, the only space that you had, you know, so the bunks are stacked three high, and you had a curtain, and that was your only space. If you got up too fast uh, and tried to sit up straight, you'd smash your head on the light that was <laughs> over your head because there, there's not a lot of space on these things. Yeah. And so... The acceptable norms of behavior changed. Everybody's walls went up. You put your defenses up. And so there's some camaraderie, but most of it is is rooted in behavior that wouldn't be accepted in polite society. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's just you do what you can to be distracted. Because part of it is you're on a nuclear ballistic submarine. There's you're not getting fresh air. Mm-hmm. You're not getting real light. Everything is um, is fluorescent. And the only way you really know what time of day it is is by what meal is being served because you switch over to an 18-hour day. So you're on watch for 6 and you're off for 12 and you're on watch for 6. So your whole circadian rhythm gets changed because your yeah. 24-hour day just turned into an 18-hour day. And in that 12 hours that you have off, you're training, you're drilling, you're cleaning, and you're qualifying. You're always trying to qualify the next watch. And then you're trying to get sleep in between there. And we usually drilled six days a week because you got 160 people on there. They Each one needs to know how to do everything in emergency. If there's a fire, if there's flooding, if there's a hot torpedo run, if there's a nuclear emergency in the reactor, any kind of um, mishap that you can imagine, everybody has a job to do. And so you're training and drilling all the time to fight the ship. Wow. And I just, I imagine too, I mean, like, like your guys' need to be quiet, which is life and death. Mm-hmm. I mean, the procedures that must have been there for stowing anything, like it must have just been oh, everything. Like meticulous and, and anal retentive beyond belief. I oh, yeah. Everything is strapped down because you're doing angles and dangles and you've got yeah. a round hole. So you're rolling in a storm, you know, 30 degrees each way sometimes. So- Wow. So, so, okay. So that's another question. Like how deep do you have to go before the storm doesn't really affect you? Well, that's the thing. Depending on the storm, we could try to get below it. Right. Sometimes if you have to be at at periscope depth at a certain time, you can't go too low because you've got to be ready to pop up and copy the broadcast. Yeah. So what do you guys then, oh my gosh. I mean, like, you know, for example, I mean, obviously you don't want to be beamed too. The swells, like like mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's the same on a submarine. Mm-hmm. So so would you angle into them? Or you have to go straight ahead into them? like like what was? Well, the... a lot of times you're way out in the middle of the deep ocean, and it's hard to tell. It's just a soup pot. Okay, you know, so it's yeah. not like oh, there's a current or anything. You know, it's you're miles and miles and miles from everywhere, and it's just sloshing around. You know, <laughs> I remember one time we had to be up at periscope depth. The seas were really bad, but we had to be up there. We had to copy the broadcast. Things are just, people are just being slammed back and forth. I mean, they just imagine the ship just rolling one way and then rolling the other. And everybody's vomiting. Everyone, right? And so people are being relieved from watch. Every head is filled with people, you know, driving the porcelain bus. And then 
there are a lot of, and I don't want to get graphic, but there are a lot of sympathy pukers, right? And so at some point you just run out of watch standers. And I'm, I'm standing watch on the ESM stack um, and I'm a sympathy puker. So <laughs> you're just standing watch with a bucket and you're filling the bucket and you're making a report and you're filling the bucket and you're making a report because there's nobody else to relieve you because they're on the floor, you know, uh, and so, you know, yeah, we were sailors and we were mariners, but you can only take so much. It, it, you'd really just rock and roll with that round hole if you got into some bad weather. <laughs> it was nasty. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, there goes that. Yeah, I always, I always thought, oh, it'd be so much nicer on a sub where you just don't have to worry so much about <laughs> and you, And it usually is. You know, like <laughs> I said, th- those instances were rare. Like I said, normally we could travel under it. Yeah. We're doing five knots to nowhere. We're just kind of hanging out. And like I said, when everybody was messing with everybody all the time. So I'm on the diving officer of the watch, and I got a friend who works back in machinery. And the skipper at the same time every night would go, and we had, we didn't have a gym, but we had, there's no, because there's no place to put it. Right. But there are pieces of equipment squirreled here and there. Like there's a rolling machine up on the second level and the outboards, and then there's two running machines down in uh, machinery, uh, two lower level. And so the skipper would get up his regular time. He'd go back to the running machine. He'd be on there. And my chief of the watch would get a call. You'd hear the, because we have the sound powerful. You'd hear the, and be like, yeah, chief of the watch. I'm like, okay, I'll tell him. And he'd say, hey, dive, the uh, skipper is on the running machine. I'm like, skipper's on the running machine. I say, helm, reach and maintain a three degree up bubble. And so I would just slowly <laughs> raise the submarine. So he had a he had a little bit of an incline, <laughs> and we just kind of cruised through the water until we got the call and he was done. I was like, okay, reach and maintain a zero degree bubble, and we just kind of back down. <laughs> so I was like, you know, silly things like that, just yeah. to pass the time and just kind of so important. Though. But that was that was our entertainment too. When you weren't playing cards, you were just kind of messing with people. Wow, yeah. with a <laughs> multi-billion I don't know how much they cost it goes about three billion dollars yeah okay multi-billion dollar yeah. machine yeah that's 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 incredible <laughs> it's like the world's most expensive prank right there yeah and uh people would rig dit dot bombs which is basically our radio you know you get these tapes and they punch all these little holes in them and so they have these bags of paper holes that were super small so then when we would stand watch we would fill boxes of these things and then we would rig them to different things like to the phone so that if we would somebody would come in they'd take the watch we'd have somebody call them they'd pull the phone out of the thing and then this box of dip dot bombs would rain down on their head you know <laughs> so i mean it sounds juvenile it sounds unprofessional but like i said you're you're under there for 90 days at a time there we would get these boxes of eight millimeter uh, tapes that had like various shows and movies on them but mm-hmm. you know after the first couple of weeks you ran through that box so you watched everything that, that they sent you out with and like I said nobody had any personal electronic devices so you played cards you watched the same movies over and over again for weeks and then you got creative and had to mess with people <laughs> wow yeah I wonder if there were, were there book exchanges and stuff like that, or oh yeah, people would bring books. I I read the whole Harry Potter series okay. uh, a couple times underway, and uh, I we were always bringing books out. 
Yeah, I feel I feel so interviewing uh, Kyle. who was the Kyle Wilson was the destroyer guy that, that, that on the during COVID, and like it seemed like there was a distinct lack because I was asking like, do you guys prank each other? Would you guys do stuff like like kind of what you're describing? Mm-hmm. And it seemed like there was a distinct lack of that. And I don't know if it was just because they were having to like sub isolate themselves, like mm-hmm. like individual watches were having to isolate, or or if it's a generational thing, or just the fact that. You know, like you said, you got your phone where you can store 100 movies by yourself on the phone, which yeah. is more than you guys could have ever had. Well, years and years ago, when I first got in, nobody talked about hazing. Mm. You know, and then about halfway through, all of a sudden, I was like, oh, hazing's bad. And you know, it can be to a point. But it was one of those things where I got hazed, but I always felt like it was a rite of passage. And then when I was done and I got my dolphins, I felt like I had earned my way into a brotherhood. Yeah. But then we got kinder and gentler and softer and then all kinds of hazing. I mean, there's the bad stuff that, you know, could have hurt people, but anything that was, um, that could be conceived as hazing couldn't happen. So you, you lost that ability to, to kind of mess with people and have them earn their way and feel like they earn their way <clears throat> into something which uh i thought was you know kind of too bad yeah well, so we would so we have what we call poopy suits they're one piece you know like almost like a flight suit uh-huh. and it's so that if there's a fire or there's flooding you just get up and you pull one thing off the hook and you zip up and, and you go and so sometimes we would take the feet of somebody's poopy suit and we'd staple them shut and then you'd make it sound like the general alarm was going off and you'd turn on lights and say, come on, come on, come on, there's something. And so they'd get up and they'd throw their poopy suit on. Next thing you know, they're on the floor because they can't get their feet through. Or else then there was the long cons where we had these web belts with buckles on them. And so you would just like cut an inch off of somebody's web belt and then cut another inch and they would think that they were getting fatter and fatter because oh, no. they <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <Just> think, <laughs> and it's not like they're pulling mirrors everywhere on the submarine yeah, like. no. <laughs> and then so we had these we had um, a TDU which is the trash disposal unit mm-hmm. so it's like these these cylindrical cans so picture a cylindrical can about you know maybe three or four feet tall and it's got holes in it and so they'd pack all the garbage in there, but then they'd have to weigh it because you're miles out in the ocean and you've got miles of water beneath you. So you're dumping this, you know. And so, but we had what we called these TDU weights. So they were little discs just as wide as the tube and they were about seven pounds each because if the trash didn't weigh enough, you had to put these TDU weights in to make sure it went down to the bottom of the ocean. Got it. Okay, makes sense. So you got these TDU-8s. They look like little discs, but they're fat and they're metal and they weigh seven pounds each. So again, it was like the long con. You would... Everybody had a bunk pan that they would lift and that's where all their uniforms and and stuff would be. And so what we would do is you'd put a couple of TDU-8s in there and then a couple of days later you put a couple more TDU-8s in there and next thing you know, they can't lift their bunk pan because slowly... But but surely it's getting heavier and heavier each time, and they don't know that you're just messing with them. And the, oh. yeah, <laughs> so it was like I said, juvenile, stupid, but it was fun, uh, and it was a way to just kind of mess with people a little bit and pass some time. You know, oh, one of the greatest pranks I ever heard about. It's on tall ships, except it involves a nuclear submarine. So mm. I, I believe it's appropriate to tell the story. The guy was telling me that 
this this prank happened where uh, this fellow had been told that he, you know and, and um, um, you know, the, well um, you know, to him the captain of his ship was friends with you know somebody on that sub you know the nuclear submarine or, or captain of the submarine I forget I forget the details of the story mm-hmm. but basically the detail was this this person on the submarine knew everything that was happening and so this captain said yeah we're, we're going to salute we're going to fire a gun you know the deck gun so a cannon at this sub and we need to lower the flag halfway down and bring it up again to indicate that it was just a salute. Otherwise, they're going to think we're actually attacking them and they'll they'll attack us. And, and so this guy's <laughs> like, okay. So he's standing by the flag halyard, like ready to go. Like just, okay, when this you know thing comes, oh, unbeknownst to him, they had made it so that flag could not come down. <laughs> and so they they fire the salute. He's like, oh, get the flag down. Get it down. And he's trying and struggling. Oh, I can't do it. You know, and getting more and more panicked. In the meantime, the person on the sub had triggered like like the dive alarm or yeah. something that could be, was audible. You know, yeah, like, yeah, and he's just freaking out, freaking out. And, and finally, you know, he, he got, he was told about the prank. But, and then, and then the guy telling me the prank said, and I was that guy. I was at the flag telling <laughs> you, know, which was, I was like, oh my gosh. But, uh, so I don't know. I mean, it was a firsthand account. So I'm assuming it's true. Oh yeah. Well, yeah and I, I can certainly imagine that. Like, you know, we would send guys for batteries for the sound powered phones. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they, and and you would call and say, hey, I'm sending this guy back for batteries for the sound power phones. So they'd go back to that station and say, hey, I need batteries for sound power phones. They'd say, oh, we don't have any, but you can go to the missile compartment. And, you know, so they'd call ahead and they'd just <laughs> send them all over. Or, you know, like I said, all the old stuff. You tell somebody to go get you a bucket of steam, you know, and it was... Uh, that's what you did to fill the the hours uh, in between, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's 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 neat. Oh, it's neat to think too that like until recently, or or, or maybe not. I could be wrong. Maybe some still have that that kind of attitude. But uh, but yeah, that's how it's always been on boats. It's always always been mm-hmm. on subs for sure. And on subs, like I said, we had the one piece poopy suits, but we also got to wear sneakers because they wanted you to wear something quiet, so okay. you're not wearing boots and stuff like that. And then because we didn't surface, we didn't get poor calls. Nobody wants a ballistic missile submarine in in their port. And we have to cover the target package. We have to be ready to put, you know, warheads on foreheads. Yeah. So we were out there. So we got to grow facial hair, you know, which the rest of the Navy didn't get to do. So we, and we got decent food. Yeah, they're like, okay, we're gonna. So we, it was mostly frozen, but you know, we had steaks and like on halfway nights, sometimes we would have lobster tail and steaks and and things like that. Um, And that's really the only thing that we were limited by. So on a submarine, we make our own water because you bring on seawater and then you desalinate it. So we make our own water. We got an endless supply of water. We make our own air because then you split the hydrogen and oxygen and you dump the hydrogen overboard and you put the oxygen in the in the tanks. So we're making our own water. We're making our own air. We can do that indefinitely. Uh, we've got our own power. That's you know we're not limited by fuel or, or battery power because we've mm-hmm. got a nuclear power plant on board. You're limited by how much food you can bring. So in, in the current, I mean, I wonder if they're designing subs because now everything's going more and more automated. Mm-hmm. Like the massive container ships and stuff are using fewer and fewer. I mean, the the size of the crew is nothing. It's like a dozen people or less. You know, it's crazy mm-hmm. to think about. Um, I mean, I'm assuming future subs they're going to be more and more automated. I would I would think right. Like they're slightly more automated, but there's so many jobs and so many things that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be hard to automate all those systems. You know, just in you know, loading and firing a torpedo alone, you know, and 
if there is a fire or if there is flooding and you don't have people there, it'd be hard to have enough systems in place to say, oh, we're really sure that no matter what happens, these backup systems are going to stop the flooding and save the ship. Yeah. I would say people are always going to be better at assessing the situation and being experts in their surroundings are going to be able to fight that ship better than any automated system. Yeah. Especially if they're training all the time. Like mm-hmm. that. And if you have a system that fails like electrical and that's an integral part of the safety system. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's what everybody's yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. Like everybody. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You, you see it all the time with like, they have these incredible electronics on the ships and, and then, but I always, you know, I'd always train people the way I was trained, which is like, okay, you know, you're going into port here and yeah, you got the chart plotter and it's showing you like within a meter where you are, mm-hmm. you know, notwithstanding that the, the, the chart information is probably less accurate than that. So you're actually, you can't actually be that accurate. But if, like I always teach people like, okay, look behind you, look, look at what that looks like because mm-hmm. you never know when this thing's going to fail and you need to line up something behind you or something ahead of you or like, you know, you need to be constantly watching what's around yeah. you. And, and just memorizing stuff. And it's one of those tricks where, yeah, like the more you memorize things, the better you get at it. Yeah, and we were, and we would transit out. It would, we'd be on the surface, like I said, for hours. Mm-hmm. And our primary and our most accurate source was um, visual nav aids, you know. So I, that was one of my jobs. I was on the scope. And, you know, you're doing, you know, two minute rounds, but then when there's a lot of traffic, you're doing one minute rounds. and. They're like, all right, Mark, and you got to hit three nav aids that are triangulated enough so you can get an accurate position. And then, like, they're like, all right, thirty second rounds, and you're you're just running around hitting these nav aids, but that's giving you your a more accurate position than you know. We, back in the day, we had Loran, right? Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and then of course, when GPS only had the initial GPS, I think only had twenty four satellites in orbit, so you had uh, to yeah. know about when you can even come up and have enough to get a good fix because um, when GPS first came online, if you came up and there weren't enough satellites in your orbit, you weren't getting a fix and you just exposed yourself. Well, just so folks know, the Loran system is like based off of radio radio frequencies and they would have these stations set up all over the world basically. Yeah, it stood for long range aid to navigation. They would just constantly yeah. transmit and so you would triangulate your position based on those radio frequencies that were coming in and but figuring I, out where they were. I have not met a single mariner yet that didn't complain about that system. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was a horrible, horrible system. system. But when you had it and that was it. But that's why, you know, the visual navigators are so important. Yeah. And then of course on a submarine, we have the inertial navigation system. So you take a fix, you know exactly where you are, and you go down, and you have. So one of my specialties in the um, navigation center was the ESGM, which is electrostatically supported gyro monitor. And so you got two gyros in there, and they're spinning at 3,600 revolutions per second. Wow! And you can even imagine that. So there, it's a titanium. Uh, it's a brilliant ball. And it's spinning at 3,600 revolutions revolutions per second inside this little sphere that has got uh, four plate pairs that are suspending it so it doesn't touch the sides. And it's got tantalum wires in it that, this is probably really boring for people, but anyway, it's got, <laughs> it's got these two tantalum wires in there that induce the tiniest wobble. And that's how you sense how fast it's spinning. And it's made of beryllium so that if anything ever happens and it touches the wall, it'll turn to dust. Because if it was made of something significant, 
it would shoot out through the SGM and destroy a lot of equipment and anybody who happened to be standing in the way. <laughs> because at that rate of speed, it's yeah. going to have some velocity behind it. <laughs> well, you lost me, but I'm, I'm sure there's like <laughs> millions of people now. Like, oh my gosh, this is the description of the brilliant uh, 30. Uh, okay. But well, you know, that, but that, was, I mean, that, was, that was the heart of, you know, sensing the movement on the ship. So as that that's spinning and you have the accelerometer, so you get your gyroscopes and your accelerometers on this platform, and that's designed to sense every movement of the ship. So once you go down, you're not getting Loran, you're not getting visual nav aids, you're not getting GPS. So it is sensing every moment or every every movement of the ship and updating your position based on what that platform is sensing. So this, okay, so this is a, uh, so it's like the ultimate in dead reckoning, is yes, what you're saying. exactly. Okay. And it, it could sense, it, and it would, it, and you guys would calculate or it would account for water movement past you, like if you had a half knot of current and you're passing through it. So it, like, it didn't, it didn't even take external readings. This sensed movement. So up and down movement, forward, side movement, it sensed every movement on that platform. And so acceleration within the ship. So it's not even. So it's it's censoring the acceleration of the ship through the water. Okay. Wow. And then and then so if that acceleration stops, but you're still going at ten knots or whatever it is, then mm -hmm. you would just. That that's fascinating. That's amazing. Yeah, and that <laughs> and that was how we got as as accurate an input as we could, so that we could support the uh, missile fire control system. Boy, now, geez. Okay, so really. Because that's a very, as you said, it's a very sensitive system. Mm -hmm. And I'm certain, no, I mean, even if it's in a bunch of casing and a bunch of like, like if you took a major hit from anything, I mean, that would probably really damage the oh, system. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, geez. Like, like, I guess what I'm wondering is how, how no, I, I can't ask that question probably. How dead in the water would you be if you, you took a near depth charge or a torpedo that was you know just obviously if it hit you directly you're done obviously yeah. but if it was like far enough away that it just kind of shook the hull and you know movie style yeah well that's um, the thing like I said since all the decks are floating and mm -hmm. then so all the decks are floating but then every other piece of equipment is also mounted with sound mounts and rubber mounts so everything is kind of floating inside of floating <laughs> uh, it was it was all really well um, structured so that I mean yeah if you got a depth charge really close aboard and realistically the bottom line was if we launched our missiles right it's they were going to launch a nuke in the general vicinity we were going to be dead anyway you're not getting away jeez you know <laughs> I mean, Jeez. it's just the reality of it. You yeah. can you can say, "Oh, we'll go all ahead full, and we'll pick a direction, and and we'll try, and and maybe there's a, a possibility." But if someone's launched at us and we've relaunched, they're going to see where we relaunched from, and then they're going to launch a massive nuclear strike in that area, just in case we have any nukes left, and they don't want us to get them off the. I mean, they don't want us to get them off at a later time. Yeah, well, in in water, like you don't have to get to like that. That energy gets distributed mm -hmm. so fast and horribly quickly. Oh, I didn't know that. That's I never thought of that. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you're just interesting. That's fascinating because I remember I so I was lucky enough to get a tour once from a a, a B fifty two. It's I forget what the air, airfield now. It's just in California. It's uh, I, forget, I can't remember what the name of it is, but they say they have the most 
it's the most um, maintained or accurate B-52, I believe, in the world from the Soviet era. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Soviet, I'm sorry, from the Cold War. Okay. From the Cold War era. Um, it's the most, it has all the bells and whistles from the Cold War era that, that these guys, you know, just out of love and, you know, collecting all the parts and, you know, redoing it, uh, r- restoring it to that era. But I was lucky enough, my dad, his, one of his patients, you know, her, her husband had, he was a commander of one of these planes. Mm-hmm. And we got a tour, not only from the commander, <laughs> this is just me and my dad, like of this entire plane. We got a tour from the commander, from a navigator, and from an engineer on the ground. So wow. like, okay. like first class tour, like, like wow. Yeah. Just for, just for me. Full gamut. Just for yeah. me and my dad. Yeah, like, like on, on the off hours of this museum, it was insane. And but I remember because I I love the movie Doctor Strangelove you know watch that and I it this guy ruined Doctor Strangelove for me and not <laughs> not directly he said nothing bad about Doctor Strangelove Doctor Strangelove was not brought up in conversation mm-hmm. it was simply I have one word to describe the guy and that was professional mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and like it just ruined my image of Slim Pickens going down on that bomb it was like the most yeah. inaccurate thing I've ever seen it's just like no this guy would have just followed like not followed orders I mean they they weren't dumb but it was just like. He would have, the plane could be going down and he would still be, fun- like, you could just tell he was just that type of person, mm-hmm. person that 10% of the population that can just do the right thing right up until the end. Yeah. And professional, if I had one word to describe the guy. And it was, yeah, it just kind of ruined it for me, the whole movie. But, um, well, it made me think of something when you were talking about sure. that. Because people ask me about, oh, Crimson Tide, how real is that? <laughs> right. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, uh, so the captain doesn't jog throughout the ship. That's not yeah, a thing. no, and, and there's no dogs. You know, peeing on the missiles, and <laughs> and you know they show everybody partying in the bunk rooms and stuff like that. I was like, no, no, you you get your butt beat because everybody there's always somebody sleeping. You know, because you've got people, you know, every six hours, there's another watch section coming on. So in the bunk rooms, there's always somebody sleeping, and so. You go in there and you got to be really quiet. That's why when we mess with people and put those TD weights in their bunk pans and they'd be like, and they'd be slamming and they'd be like, what the hell, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So it's always quiet and dark in the bunk rooms unless everybody's up because there's a drill or or something like that. Um, So yeah, they they depict a lot of things where people are running around and and partying. It's like, yeah, not so much. That's Hollywood. But a lot of the things that they do about the EAM, the emergency action messages and the uh, the two-person integrity is like oh, some of that was you know relatively accurate but wow. a lot of it was Hollywood so I used to go to those movies just to, to be entertained you know and I'd enjoy it but yeah. some of my compatriots would go oh that's BS and I was like it's not a documentary alright it's, <laughs> it's a Hollywood movie it's meant to be fun just you know enjoy it and don't critique it for you know real life comparison <laughs> would you like another beer I would alright <laughs> awesome grab one too so I'd love to interview him. That'd be that'd be really fun and, and awesome. Yeah, uh, that'd be an awesome story to hear. Yeah, I mean, there is all, but it, but the I don't know. They're all really interesting stories. And what surprises me, and I guess we're back at the interview. What surprises yeah. me is that, like, like, just you know, even though my experience is tall ships, how much of it translates to every other type of boat out there? Yeah. Every, I mean, even some of the stuff you're describing. Like we were talking about the leadership. And, you know, and how, you know, he's doing my backseat cap. You were listening to my backseat cabin mm-hmm. episode and you were saying that a lot of the stuff that they was in there was like, oh, yeah, we actually practice that on our your submarines. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so 
Later on in my career, I was a diving officer watch, but early on when I was in E4, I was the radar operator during surface transits. And so you've got a lot going on. And so you've got, you're getting stuff from radio transmitted and you've got the cap, you've got the, basically the um, officer deck is up in the bridge and then the rest of us are down and controlled. So we've got radar and we've got radio and we've got sonar and everybody's giving reports and they're trying to condense them and they're trying to take you get a sonar report and that's designated S whatever or Sierra whatever and you get a radar report and that's Romeo whatever and then, so they're trying to designate the more um, the ones that are more concerned is master so they're concentrating on the masters but I got this radar contact and it's like we're on a collision course he's a little bit of ways out but we're on a collision course so I'm I'm like officer deck you know Romeo whatever we're you know CPA of zero you know in in, in like eight <laughs> minutes and I was like okay okay and uh, they were watching all these other masters, and I was like, uh, "Officer Deck, uh, we still got a CBA of zero, but now it's in in, in six minutes." And he's like, "Okay, okay." And he's a junior officer, and and uh, when we got about four minutes out, I just kind of lost my shit. I'm like, "Sir, we have to turn." Yeah. <laughs> I'm like this E4 hollering at this officer, like, "You're not paying attention to what's going on right here." And then he's like, "Oh, you're." Not- hard to starboard you know because we had some some room but there was so much going on and he was getting so much information and there were a lot of people transiting and fishing boats and sailboats and everybody's trying to get close to the sub and this was pre 9-11 so after 9-11 we would have um we would have boats that would accompany us yeah and they'd keep people at bay um but pre 9-11 we were just out there you know maybe you'd have one little zodiac trying to make sure people didn't get too close but um when i listened to your backseat captain i was like oh yeah i can totally see how people would lose the big picture with so many things going on and it only takes that one person who might be a deckhand or a radar operator to say we need to pay attention to this you know because you were talking about where that guy was coming around the horn yeah just coming around the point yeah and uh (laughs) and to this day i'm like i don't know I was I was not focused where it needed to be. Obviously, like, like it was right yeah. there. It was right there on the chart plotter. Should have seen it. And, yeah. You know when and when the San Francisco class submarine hit the underwater mountain, people were like, "How could that happen?" And it's like they're not all charted. Hmm. You know, so sometimes it's not charted, but sometimes there's a lot of other things going on at the same time, and yeah. it's it's hard to maintain the big picture all the time when there's that much going on, and especially if you're in an area where you've got possible hostiles. So, you know, now you've got another major consideration that is taking up a, a lot of your bandwidth. Yeah, no, it's true. And it's, well, and definitely I, I learned as a captain, because my, my personality type is, more, or my brain type is more, I can like hyper-focus if I want to, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to learn to be really ADD almost, you know, like just looking around and constantly, constantly checking, like, like you're just constantly, do, 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 your brain has mm-hmm. to be, not detach. I don't know. But just, you're ADD. Like you're really looking everywhere. <laughs> and yeah. uh, there were some captains that had more of that. That was their innate personality. And so they mm-hmm. had to learn, they had to learn to hyper focus when it came to, like paperwork. When it came to, <laughs> to like oh this this you know like you said this target's actually really important. Now you need to concentrate more on that. But but in general, yeah, it's like, it's weird. You have to you have to be able to do all of it when you're in charge. And if you can't, then you probably should learn how to do that yeah. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know like yeah it was um yeah you got to be really f- flexible in that sense 
Oh, it's uh, it's it's fun. I don't know. Yeah, oh well, yeah. And so, in addition to all that, you have the Whirly Eight operator, who's um, basically getting the information for other people's radars, and you can. Mm-hmm. So you're getting the um, the frequency, amplitude, and the signal strength, and they're classifying them as friendlies or your possible uh, enemy combatants or, or what have you. And we, I remember we were we we're transiting out one day, and we had this guy, and his name was Ski, and you know. God bless Ski. He's a good kid, but not the brightest, you know, bulb in the string. And all of a sudden, he hops up, and the and the captain was on the on the con at this time. He's like, Captain Gamble, we have a we have a Beeps fifteen radar signal strength five. You know, it's emergency. It's carried on submarines, and and he's losing his mind. And the and the skipper just leans over to him and he goes, uh, Son, that's us. <laughs> <laughs> and and I was the navigation supervisor at the time, and I hear this all happening. And he goes, uh, navigation supervisor to the con. So I walk out there, and before he said anything, I said, sir, I'm uh, getting a new whirly aid operator right now. Because thank you. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, training ensued. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh. Well... Gosh, yeah, and I can't imagine, like, especially back then, I feel, I don't know, maybe it's getting, I can't tell if it's getting better or not, but the whole concept of people thinking that that, that little hierarchy, you know, the hierarchy of ships is like, this, like, all oh, sailboats are above a powerboat, therefore nuclear <clears throat> submarine, you're under power, therefore it's like, no, 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 yeah. it doesn't work that way at all. And that's <laughs> it, you know, you've got the sailboats always think they have the right of way. No. You know, I'm understanding, it's like, we're restricting our ability to maneuver, yeah. and we got a round hole, and we, and we are not moving for you. <laughs> Even if we wanted to, we're we're just not going to. And so, we had a lot of, like I said, iffy situations with with sailboats that would just get too close, and especially when we pulled into San Diego because there were a lot of them and bigger ones, and yeah. So yeah, <laughs> it's it like you and when you like you said, you've got your rules of the road, you got your right away, but. The idea is don't hit anybody. Don't let anybody hit you. Yep. So uh, when you, it's good to know those rules of the road, but it's also good when to, at some point, you got to apply some common sense. Well, I remember um, in our very first interview I did for this podcast, we, we were talking about Captain Jake and Jake Jacobson, the wolf, mm-hmm. the wolf Jake Jacobson. But he, uh, he, he, I just remember one time hearing the story where this other captain, they were in a six-boat battle sail. This is like all under sail, tall ships, like you know, mm-hmm. a lot of moving parts here, right? And this one captain was just trying to pull the rules of the road on, like, like it was like trying to force his way in or whatever. And so afterwards, I guess Jake went up to him and said, "What you?" You do not do that ever again. The southern captain was trying. To, he was a younger captain at the time. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, but the rules of the road said it's a six boat battle sail. There are no rules of the road. <laughs> I mean, what yeah. are you thinking? <laughs> and just laid yeah. into him. But yeah, it's uh, oh my gosh, I've seen yeah, I've seen some. Oh, I'm sure you've seen some crazy stuff too. But the um, there was one time though. There was one time I remember. We were, and I think it was a ballistic missile submarine. I believe, I believe, I think, yeah, I think it was. I'm actually I'm almost 100% certain because they were coming off our starboard side and we were well away from them. Obviously, this is post 9 11. So, and if I was looking at, at the sub through 
like I took a picture through my binoculars because <laughs> I'd never been that close to a ballistic missile submarine before. I was really excited. And anyway, so we're going, and one of the standing orders for the crew, as any crew that's ever sailed with me, that there's like formal standing orders where it's like, you you know, if, if we have CPA of less than three miles, wake me up, if mm -hmm. you know, or four, right. that kind of stuff, right? And then, but the bottom of the list, I always hand wrote, if anything awesome happens, yeah. like, like if anything <laughs> awesome is about to happen, let me know. I want to yeah. be up there for something awesome. It's like yeah. ballistic missile submarines were on that list. But they, um, I was listening on the radio and it was uh, channel, uh, yeah, we were on, we were listening to like channel 14, I think it was 14. Oh, God, uh, this is me being long-winded. Anyway, we are listening to vessel traffic, mm. vessel traffic service. And, and they were, this tugboat was trying to contact the sub. I forget exactly how it happened, but basically they, this, um, what was it? It was the, oh yeah, the tug, there was another vessel that was trying to contact the sub and just, just making passing arrangements, like mm -hmm. really just like pretty, pretty cordial, pretty like, like it was something like that. It was very, pretty basic. And the submarine, the guy, on the, you know, whoever was talking on the sub was like, we will make our own passing arrangements or like something like that. Really curt. You know, and I kind of told the crew, like, because there was, you know, it's like, I know what's going to happen. I just, I just, I, I couldn't explain it, but I was like, I know what's going to happen. Right now, that guy's commanding officer is lecturing him horribly. Something about taxpayers and how, like, <laughs> we represent, you know, because they, yeah. no, no, no. And this person was just trying to help us and trying to make things clear, and you just shut them down. You know, and so the next thing, <laughs> sure enough, you're on the radio, this same guy, same guy talking, who was very curt and rude before, he's kind of meekly sort of like, Actually, yeah, we'll we'll do that. Pass, you know, whatever you recommend. <laughs> it was so funny. Where it's like, yeah. oh man, I called it. <laughs> and that's it. A lot of times when you're transiting on the surface like that, you, they're putting JOs in there to get some training. Mm -hmm. And these guys are just so afraid. <laughs> it's so overwhelming. They're getting information from so many different um, sources, and they're just losing it. You know, so the the first reaction is like. I'm angry and I'm scared, so shut up. <laughs> but yeah. there's always a senior officer or the skipper, especially on when we're surface transiting, everybody's up. There's mm -hmm. nobody in the rack and there's nobody not doing something. Everybody's up and they're training, you know, their counterparts um, because it is a big deal, you know. Wow, it's so funny. Yeah, for you guys, like, it just cracks me out. Like, the standard for you is just, like, to be underwater. And they're like, oh, everything's fine now. We're yeah. under the water. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's it, so funny. Being on the surface, it sounds messed up. It's not our natural state. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, and then getting underway is a big deal. You know, you've got these 72-hour checklists, you know. So you start your 72-hour checklist, and then your 48-hour, and then your 24-hour, and then you run around. And for every hour you delay, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars because you've got all these support people you know and you've got tugboats and you've got pilots and you've got um your security patrol so you've got to get underway plus you've got to be you've got to get out on station to cover your target package so that the next submarine who's been out there for 90 days they can come home so if you're out late yeah. they're extended and so Sorry, another sea story. So, hey, that's what this is about. So, this whole podcast is about sea stories. So. so, I'm the navigation chief, and we've got, in order to communicate to the bridge, we've got this long cable, and it's got a, I don't even remember how many pins, but it, there's a, a male connector going into a female connector, and it's got probably like 29 or more pins to it. And so, they, they stick this in, and there's a, an issue, and they pull it out, and one of the pins breaks off into the female part. 
And so we don't have a spare and we're just a couple hours from getting underway. And in order to do this correctly and fix it, you got to run a tag out and you got to power it down and it's going to take, and we're going to be really late getting underway and it's going to be an issue. So I sent one of my guys to the next sub over and said, get their cable. Tell them when we come back, we'll make this right. And he brings it over and he goes, well, we got to run a tag out because we got a, we got this pin in the female part and it's energized. I said, you stand to watch at the bottom of this ladder and I'm going to go up there with the drill and the smallest drill bit I got and I'm going to drill into this pin and pull it out. And I'm going to do the best I can and not get electrocuted. <laughs> right. So I, I get all this stuff. I got a guy standing there and then our navigator comes through and I'm like just like three steps up the ladder with this bag of crap that are bringing up there and he goes chief what are you doing and i look at him and said sir i'm providing you with plausible deniability and he looked at me and he goes carry on chief because <laughs> 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 he you know he it's like ultimately my department was his responsibility and yeah, well. he had to tell the captain we were getting underway late so he knew something was going to be fishy but i i was like i was like you really don't want to know. And so I went up, I drilled that part out, and we got underway on time. But if you were to do it the quote-unquote right way, it would have taken us hours, and it yeah. would have, we would have been underway late, and it would have cost thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars probably in all the extra man hours and stuff for everybody standing by to get us underway hours late. So sometimes you just do the right thing even though it's not the right thing <laughs> I, that makes sense <laughs> yeah and so i mean so obviously you have all these checklists you got people probably double checking everything making because you have no options once you're out there there's no right. resupply submarines there's no resupply ships so no there's yeah nothing we, like that we don't do underwear replenishments yeah, you know, it's not world war ii you boats so, mm -hmm. yeah okay so did you guys ever go out and just maybe, maybe you know something went missing or something was just like shoot we forgot the coffee we forgot the well we did you know. a shakedown uh, day by bay where so the uh, delta pier um, in Bangor mm -hmm. if you go just south and east there's a, a deep bay called day by bay and so usually a few days before we got underway we would spend all day and we would be able to submerge there and we'd be able to run through all of our systems and, and everything. And we would do drills and we would run through everything we possibly could to make sure that there was nothing missing. Usually about, you know, less than a week before we got underway. So I don't remember if it was like, you know, 48 hours, 72 hours, but you know, we were out all day and all night just running up and down day by day to make sure everything was good because there's always a refit period that's about, you know, 45 to 60 days. Okay. And so we would do that. But yeah, if you got underway and you didn't have something you need, too bad. You know, wow. you're, you're not pulling back in for it. Um, Did, and now I'm assuming on a vessel that size, like you would have had your own machine shops. You, you would have had the ability to create some parts, right? Some, some parts. But what we did, we brought a lot of okay. parts underway. And, and so we had a, a massive storage system and an SK system, uh, storekeeper system for, for parts. And, um, you know, a lot of parts, like that Berlin ball I was telling you about. Yeah. We had to replace that once. That's $100,000 for a Berlin ball that's like a centimeter in diameter. But because it's so highly machined and accurate, 100000 bucks for to replace a ball. 
but geez but so everything was categorized and so we had there's a backup to a backup that that's what the navy does is there's yeah. a backup to a backup and but when i was on subs it was like in the 90s we still had magnetic tape readers like if you remember the old um science fiction movies from the 70s and they had those big machines with the big round things spinning around no, I'm not able to picture. I'm so, sorry. So picture like a film, yeah, disc, yeah. and that's and so our computers had these oh, big film discs with magnetic tape on it, and oh, that's wow. what we had. My kids and I, and my my family, we were in Hawaii last year, and we were on Oahu, and they have a new submarine museum, mm-hmm. and the stuff I worked on was in that. <laughs> I mean, talk about being uh, a, a little bit old. See, everything it, on the boats I worked on was in a museum, so uh, <laughs> I never. <laughs> but it was, you know, and it's these big clunky machines with these big giant buttons, and yeah. my kids were, you know, like, oh, this is so old and so ancient. But you know, it was '60s technology that we still had on submarines in the '90s. You know, because it it's not something that happens. We don't keep up really quick because everything changes so fast. Well, in this day and age, God, you don't want to buy something from China, do you? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just give all and it was funny because yeah. my my mom and my uh, and my stepdad were with us, and I was talking to the kids and like, what's this? Was and I'm telling them all this stuff. And at one point, my stepdad taps me on the shoulder and he goes, "Look behind you!" And I had like twelve people standing behind me, like tour <laughs> guide. And, and I don't like being one of those guys. Like, oh, I was on submarines, yeah. And I was just trying to talk to my children and tell them, you know, what they were looking at. But all these people like kind of gravitated over because it was like a self-guided museum, so nobody else was telling them anything. But it was really kind of surreal seeing stuff that I sat at and stood watch, which I didn't feel it was that long ago until I was in the museum <laughs> seeing it there. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, though, though I, I, I mean, like you said, there's, there's backup systems, the backup systems, there's redundancy mm-hmm. upon redundancy. And I mean, like, like you were talking about with, with uh, the destroyer guy, like they, they still use the sound powered phones and they have, I guarantee you they probably still have those on those subs today. And the new ones coming oh, yeah. out probably still have them too. They and just the wonder. beautiful thing about that, those sound powered phones is they're, they're those are like nuclear proof. They're made of that old, I forget what they call it, the plastic from those. I mean, you could like use it as a hammer, you know? And so you you take a station and you dial it up and you whoop it and that person's phone rings. And there's another way we used to mess with people. I had a friend who was quartermaster and he would get on watch, but I would get up there before him and I would take an ink pad and I would ink the phone. And then we would whoop it and be like, and he'd, quartermaster, quartermaster of the watch. And then he'd get an eye because nobody would answer. And then you'd whoop him again, and he'd put it up to his other ear. And so his ears would be all covered in black grease. Oh, no. <laughs> he'd, he'd be walking around the whole watch until somebody just started laughing in his face. I'm like, what? What's going on? What's so funny? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that old technology, it, it takes a beating, and it just keeps on working. So... Well, I feel like so many of these lessons translate like directly to like yacht sailboats. I mean, any boat really. But uh, I know you know my wife. She's a marine technician, so mm-hmm. she can fix all the electronic systems, anything you know on a boat. She can fix it. It's amazing. It has a real knack for it. But our boat that we hope someday to get, like we just decided we want. If I mean, yeah, we'll have a chart plotter. Yeah, we'll have AIS for sure. Radar, all mm-hmm. the you know. But 
But man, if we can replace a pump with a foot pump or a hand power pump or anything, like the windlass is not going to be like, like there's going to be no electronics on that boat. If yeah. we can, if we can have a simple thing that uses human power that we can fix ourselves, like that's the system we're going to have, you know, and we'll have spare parts for it. And I feel like, yeah, anybody sailing on a boat, like, yeah, just why not? If you're going to buy one of something, buy, buy three. Yeah. You know, make sure you have a replacement. <clears throat> you know, I, I mean, I would definitely, Especially if you're going offshore, if you're if you're going more than a couple hundred miles out, you really should probably like yeah. you need to be self sufficient. Period. And one time we had the magnetic tape unit break down, and we didn't have the spare part. Hmm. But we have you know books and books. I mean, it's like I said, it's ancient. You know, it's not nothing was electronic, but we had we had uh, file cabinets just filled with binders, and so you'd be fl- you'd be watching and tracing through the flow diagrams. Uh, and we were able to trace the broken part down to a capacitor on this card, but we didn't have a spare card. So we were able to find another component that had the same type of capacitor. So we were able to cut it off and solder it on. Wow. <laughs> and and fix it that way and, and stay on mission. And that was back in the old Navy when we were training technicians. The problem is now we're training operators. And so they have massive um, replacements for like big black box items and you know but if it comes down to troubleshooting it down to component level we, we're not training people to that anymore which I, I feel like it's too bad you know so it's gotten more automated and it's gotten more streamlined but you still need people to operate it but we're not training them as technicians any longer yeah it's, yeah. Like, it's a lost art interesting did uh, now when you're on board? Obviously, if somebody has a heart attack, if somebody has a serious medical issue, they don't have a whole lot of options, do you? Like what? What? So we have so a couple of interesting things. You'll never meet a submariner who has wisdom teeth because in order to get on subs, you have to go through additional physical requirements and evaluations. You have to go through psychological evaluations. Um, there are a lot of things that are medically disqualifying from subs, but you can still stay in the Navy and go to the surface fleet. Um, and one of the things is because we don't have dentists, we don't have a doctor, we have a corpsman who's usually maybe an E6 or an E7. So if you're going on submarines, they're taking your wisdom teeth out, whether you have a problem or not, because eventually there might be a problem, so they don't want it. So they take your wisdom teeth out because you're going on submarines, not because there's a problem with them, just don't need to worry about that down the line um if we had a guy who had appendicitis one time and we luckily had a chief corpsman and they operated on him on the boardroom table and yanked his appendix out and he survived and because we were out where we were nowhere near anything and it was like this thing is bursting you know and then another crew had, they were loading the floating wire, uh, the spare, because something happened to the floating wire that we had. And so that's a hand over hand evolution. All hands are coming down through control and, and getting it fed back out. But so you can copy a broadcast with a floating wire. You don't have to stick um, a mast out of the water. So you can still copy a broadcast, but you're, you're less vulnerable. And so they're doing this in control. By copy, you mean receive. Yeah. Like understood the pocket. Right. Um, so they're hand over hand this thing and this kid who was in his early 20s had a brain aneurysm and just died 
And so he was put in a body bag and stored in the freezer until we could get clearance to go somewhere with him. Because we're covering a package, you know. And, uh, you know, we've had people who've had medical issues and eventually we can get them to somewhere where we can get a helo come out and do a basket transfer and then we can get right back uh, on patrol but um, those are the realities The you're covering a nuclear patrol and that's why they che- that's why they check the uh, the uh, family grams because somebody getting detrimental information they um they can't do anything about it you know when when i had to go out on september 11th my foster mom worked in the twin towers and so when you're on subs you have to sign this paperwork that says hey if anything detrimental happens to your family do you want to know or not you know and i had always filled it out that no i don't want to know so we were out underway a couple of days and my exo knew that i had somebody who worked at the twin towers he goes hey i want you to we're going to send off a message to get the disposition of your foster mom. I said, sir, if you read my file, you know, I don't want to know that. What am I going to do with that information? Yeah. You know? Um, so he apologized. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, this is all new to us. But uh, the good news was a few days later, the Red Cross sent the message out that we were able to copy. And they told me that... Uh, my foster mom wasn't at work that day. Now, she lost a lot of people that she knew with because they were. But, you know, the whole submarine thing, when I was on it, I was like, yeah, this is my job. And it wasn't until after I got out of it and people started asking me questions. Like, you know, I did something pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not a lot of people get to do that. And you don't think about all these things and how strange and how surreal and how different they are than real life when you're living them. You know, yeah. so... Yeah, that's true. A lot, especially when, you know, yeah, when, when things just become so normal. Like, mm-hmm. like, like I remember, I mean, I, I'm, I used to be horribly afraid of heights. I mean, horribly, mm-hmm. horribly afraid of heights. And not so good for a tall shit. <laughs> like, you gotta, you know, so I, I would force myself to climb every day. Even, even if we didn't have to climb, I'd, I'd be like, Captain, can I climb up? You know, just, just to get myself used to the heights and get myself used to working up there. But yeah, after, well, maybe it took me more than a few months, but after like a few years of doing this, like we'd be up there and it's like surgeons talking about blah, 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 while they're doing brain yeah. surgery. You know, it's just like, <laughs> and, and I just remember we were sitting there just working on something and just casually talking, you know, we're hanging however high, 50 feet above, you know, the deck. And I just remember we had a new person, you know, a new trainee or whatever, and she just said, you guys are way too comfortable up here. <laughs> but... Well, we had explained to her, it's like, we're not, like, I don't know. Because we weren't, well, maybe some of the sailors were. I was never complacent, ever, mm-hmm. ever, got never, never complacent. And that's just, that's good, right? You mm-hmm. don't want to be complacent. But at the same time, you just instinctively know, like, you reach out your hand and you, there's just all, there's always going to be a shroud there. I mean, like, like mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and obviously as you're climbing up, you, you check, you know, like if there's a project, you don't want to reach your hand out and not have a shroud there. That would be very bad. But, right. but there's always gonna be like a solid piece of rigging where if that's missing, you got bigger problems, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so it's like, yeah, like, I don't know. We just, you just kind of know after a while what to grab and, and what not to grab. And 
you know, it just it becomes very, as you said, it's like it's just how it is, and you don't even think about how cool it is. Yeah. Like, like there were a lot of times I'd go up a loft in like the coolest situations, where it's like really cool weather systems, really cool animals, whatever, and I would just like blah, 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 get my job done, you know, furl the sail, done, race down, and I'm like, oh dang it, I probably should have taken five seconds to at least look at around me and you know and just enjoy the moment, you know. Oh yeah. And so I had to consciously do that. I had to consciously be like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna furl the sail and I'm gonna take five seconds and really be like this is so cool and I'm not going to get to do this the rest of my life and da 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 and then, and then climb down so I started doing yeah. that consciously yeah because you have to because you, you take things for granted I, we pulled into Hawaii a couple times late at night uh, especially if we had something break you know because basically we could pull into Oahu and I'd be the lookout and it was so incredible to watch the bioluminescence just run down the side of the sub and then in the back in the wake and it's pitch black dark because there's no light pollution you're in the middle of the ocean you're a day out you know because usually when we break we'd have to surface and travel the rest of the way on the surface <laughs> so you're up there and you just on the lookout but then you're like this is so so cool you know just seeing this bioluminescence and being out in the middle of nowhere and um there were a couple times when we pulled back out of Hawaii and we had some time, so we'd be able to. Now, on a China submarine, the Fairwater planes are really high. The Fairwater planes? Yeah. So Those you've you've got two sets of, of planes. You've got your stern planes in the back, and then you've got the sail up in the front with the Fairwater planes on top. So, so the sail, the sail is that the conning tower kind right. of looking thing. Okay. So you've got that, and so when you're on the surface, your stern planes are in the water not that they matter because you're on the surface but the fairwater planes are just out yeah and so you could go up the ladder to into the conning tower and then climb down onto the fairwater planes and then they would give us a swim call yeah. and so you could jump <laughs> off the fairwater planes and then they had the ladder up the side where you can climb back yeah, up that's the a ladder drop. how many feet is that that's a lot it's a lot, and if you don't time it right, it can be a lot more because the, the ship is rocking back and forth. So you want to drop off usually when the fairwater planes a little planes are a little bit lower to the water. Uh, but we got to do that. But the, it was the other thing that you don't think about, you know, because at the time it's just normal. But there's a guy with a rifle up there in case sharks are. In your water. <laughs> so you got all these people climbing up and having a great time jumping up the fairwater planes, but there's a guy on each side with a rifle and just <laughs> sharks come up because that's where we were at the time in, in that warmer water. And so I think about that now. I was like, that wasn't so normal, you know. But it it's normalized in the moment, you know. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. <laughs> So you were you were in navigation. Mm -hmm. So you did know where you were. So you had top secret clearance, right? Okay. How how was it with the people that didn't know where they were? Was it just was there a difference between those folks and the ones that kind of knew the bigger picture? Like like were were those were those folks more just cogs in the machine? Most of them didn't care. Didn't some care. of them, okay. some of them did, but you know, you're out there and you're doing a job. You're on an 18 hour day, and every day is the same, uh, mostly. And it doesn't. For most of them, it didn't matter where we were. Was there? Now you said it's 18 hour days. So how does that work? But at the same time, you guys would still celebrate things like Pearl Harbor Day. Like, like were there cele Were there still? days that that mattered like not holidays but like important moments or or well you couldn't have a crossing the line ceremony could you 
if you don't if you don't want people to know where they are. No, you because can narrow it down to one degree. Line, right. Line so what we did do is we had halfway night, and so when you're about halfway through, there'd be a big dinner, and there'd be steaks, and there'd be there'd be um. There'd be lobster tails if we had them, you know, they, or shrimp. You know, they'd be the best food that we had in the freezer. And then we would usually have some milk on that night. Mm-hmm. So you got to remember, you're on a sub, you're not getting repl- replenishment. So after about four days, all the fresh greens are gone. After about six days, all the fresh milk is gone. Okay. And so now you're drinking powdered milk. So I'm not drinking any milk because that was nasty. <laughs> and they they would freeze um, some milk for halfway night. So on halfway night, there'd be real milk again. There'd be food. There'd be games. There'd be jalapeno eating contests. There'd be karaoke. Con- I mean, it was like this big celebration. Okay. And there'd be races. Uh, there was EAB races. And so EAB stands for Emergency Air Breathing Apparatus. Yeah. So... When you're fighting a fire, you have the OBA, which is the oxygen breathing apparatus, which is the tank. But on submarines and on some other ships, you've got an EAB, so it's a it's a mask, and then it's got a long tube sticking off of it. And there are multiple manifolds throughout the, st- the ship. Oh, cool. So you stick your uh, tube into a manifold, and then you, and you can breathe. But then if you have to go somewhere, you're like, okay, you take a deep breath. You unplug and then you find the next manifold. And so we would have EAB races. So you'd have to get from the front of the ship all the way back to the engine room to touch something and then get back. So what you're trying to do is get as far as you can without plugging in to a manifold, (laughs) which some people would get so competitive, they just freaking pass out. Because they'd be like, this is the last possible minute, and then they wouldn't plug in, and then, you know. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Pass out. But that was like our big thing. It was like halfway night, every patrol, and then there'd be skits and all kinds of stuff. And um, and so that was it. And then, like, we would celebrate. Like, for Christmas, we'd we'd have a service, and... um, I was asked to sing the Ave Maria in Latin one year for Christmas, and I didn't know it. They're like, here's a CD. Learn it. Right? Oh, man. <laughs> Sounds like a prank. But, uh, yeah, but, uh, but, but that was um, most other days were just a day was a day was a day, you know. But for, like, the big things like that, halfway night was always a big, a big deal because, you know, like, all right, we're halfway through, and, and we weren't pulling into port. You know, so halfway night for our like fast attacks or other ships, that's not such a big deal because they're pulling into port and they're getting port calls. And I had a buddy on a fast attack who would go to Spain and Italy and then he'd buy wine and he'd stick them in the outboards, you know, so that he could have stuff when he came home. But, you know, we, we didn't have that. So we had halfway night. Well, actually, that was one question I was going to ask. So you, I remember watching, oh, what was it? It was the, um, the one about the Russian submarine where they had the nuclear reactor issue and had to surface mm-hmm. and... K-19, I forget. I forget the name of it. It starred uh, Harrison Ford. Okay. Um, but but in it, they have the Russians, and they're drinking red wine. They're like, oh, well, at least, you know, they, we might not have this or that, but at least we have the best wine in the Navy. And and then one of the sailors ruins the whole moment and says, you know why you're drinking red wine? It's, uh, you, you know, you have less radiation that can be absorbed, blah, blah, mm. something <laughs> like that. So my question is twofold. Number one, did you have, did you guys have alcohol on board? Nothing. We oh. had, for a halfway night... If you would drink that swill, there was near beer, mm. you know, and that, okay. but that was brought out, and that, but that was it. But the Aussies, 
They had beer on board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that, this, so that brings me to my second question, which uh, which is because uh, well about the myths and stuff and just some of the truth or, or untruth behind it. So uh, especially maybe you can't talk about our navy, but perhaps you talk about other navies. So for so that's interesting. You know, Aussies had booze. So I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> just not surprised. Um, but but the um, and these are Aussie submariners. Yeah. Okay. So you guys would chum with them? Like how would that? Yeah, well, some of them came to um, uh, Bangor to do classes and stuff like that. And then every once in a while, if we were in Hawaii, they might be in Hawaii um, doing work and stuff like that. But yeah, they, I think they got, I don't know if it was one or two pints a day. They had a ration. Oh my God. We had nothing. <laughs> we like had near beer on halfway night. It was gr- garbage. <laughs> fresh navy grog. Yeah. Holy crap. That's, that's a, wow. Talk about I, I think I tradition. Like, and it was like O'Doul's. And I'm sorry if O'Doul's is listening, but that's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is not brought to you by O'Doul's. We, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. We, we can do great sponsorships. Um, so we got one of the myths or maybe truths. I don't know. That I heard about Russian, so Russian nuclear submarines was that the U.S. government couldn't figure out why they could go so quickly, like they could go so fast. And they were trying to figure that out, and they finally realized that there just was no shielding on like the reactors. Like obviously, the reactor needs shielding. <laughs> they had just limited that or made it to where it's like eh, close enough. Like you said, things shouldn't be close <laughs> enough. And I was yeah. like, meh, close enough. Is there any truth to that? Is it, like were the Russians able to? Skirt, because I know they did it in other things, like mm-hmm. they made airplanes out of aluminum where we were using titanium composites and very expensive materials. And the Russians were just like, I'll just pump these suckers out and, and still make them go Mach 3, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like in an emergency. The Navy Safety and Quality Control Program is bar none better than anything. The U.S. Navy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Everything's got a specification. Everything's got a standard operating procedure. You got your NOPS and your SOPS. Your, so, and I mean, everything is torqued to a specific inch, pound, and you follow it. Mm-hmm. I will, all I'll say is the Russian Navy, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember when I got to my first surface ship, it was a Frank Cable on Guam, and it was a sub tender. So I didn't get far from subs. And I went, and they were getting ready to do. Um, a procedure on some live electronic equipment and I was like whoa stop, stop the, I mean I, they were like just cowboys there was there was nothing safe about what they were doing and I was like no we're you know there's no line tender there's no shielding there's no I mean they they were lucky they had a tag out but I was like oh yeah you guys are going to understand that things are going to about to change significantly for you you know and because the sub like I said the sub navy Safety is paramount. You know, it just takes one thing. And, you know, you want your ratio of dives and surfaces always to be one-to-one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what you want. And you you put the systems in there to make sure that happens. <laughs> wow. So, that's, that's, now, do you think, was it just that vessel? Or was it, like, it, had you been on, have you been on other vessels since then, surface vessels? Is there a tendency for that? Or? I just think, well, the, the surface um, fleet just runs differently, and it's they're designed to stay on the surface. You know, yeah. we're, we're going underneath the surface. There's so many things that can happen, so many things that can go wrong. And if they do, they can it can get out of hand in such a hurry, you yeah. know. Um, so, and every 
every um, instruction that's in place in the Navy is because of a mishap prior, <laughs> you know? Yes. And yeah. so <laughs> it, it's there for a reason. It's not just people think, oh, this must be a good idea. It's like, no, we, this almost killed somebody or did kill somebody. So we're yeah. going to write a, a procedure to make sure that that doesn't happen. It's just interesting to me that mm-hmm. the, because it's all the same branch. Like you, you would think mm-hmm. if something happened on a sub, we're like, ooh, this wasn't, like, you, you just would think everybody would be held to the same exact high standard. Yeah, no, it's uh, the um, surface fleet, the sub fleet. And then when I got here and people were wearing brown shoes, that was ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> everybody has, it's, it's just very you, different. You know what it is? <clears throat> yeah, I know what it is. I think I figured it out. So it's the, it's, it's, the tall ships, the difference between being out at sea versus on a river, and like, yeah. no matter how meticulous, like, like, like you just it, it, people would just like, oh, this thing would be left unlatched, you know? Like, like yeah. you spend months on a river and you just like, it would, it, it would really, it would, it would frustrate me to no end because like guys, you know, you need to make good habits, but then you get new sailors that they've only ever been on the river, like me when I first started, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just like you just don't understand what it's like out at sea, and you know, then you don't understand what's like out in a gale or you know some horrible conditions where mm-hmm. that thing being latched is a difference between having a heavy object come and kill you or not. Yeah. It's, it's like it really, really, really matters. So yeah, it was. Uh, so I guess that's just what it is. It's a different environment, and yeah. because you can get away with it, you just kind of... And it was like, you know, on submarine, still for sea takes on a whole new meaning because, you know, you're... And every every time we go out, you do what we call angles and dangles because you want to test the limits of the ship. So yeah. you're doing a 30, 35 up, and then you're doing a 30, 35 down, and you're doing this, and you're, like, letting people know. And so our chairs on the mess decks had rubber feet, and so you do a 35 degree up and chairs would fall back. And then you do a 35 degree down, the other chairs would fall back, but some of the other ones, because they had rubber feet, would stand back up. <laughs> I mean, it was it was ridiculous, you know, but you, everything that you had in your work center and everywhere had to be strapped down and secured so that it could survive those kind of angles and angles. Because if you were gonna do an emergency blow, which we do, mm-hmm all the time just to check the system but you also do it if you need it and emergency blow is when you punch the levers and you fill your main ballast tanks with air and that thing just comes shooting out of the water you know they, they like to show those pictures you know, oh yeah, that. yeah it's yeah, coming yeah. out oh yeah that doesn't happen often but <laughs> like i said we we do do an emergency blow to test the system every patrol so you're just pumping those front tanks full of air that front rises and you're shooting out of the water you're coming up on a major angle so everything's got to be ready to not fly all over and whack somebody in the head and so some of that uh, that mercy blow and the the you know we've all hunt for october you see this up come out so epic so awesome um the so some of that is obviously it's it's uh lack of buoyancy raising it up but most of it is actually the engine Forcing the boat up. No, it's the buoyancy because you're oh, taking compressed okay. air and you're punching it into the tanks and filling those tanks with air and pushing. So all of your tanks have water in them. Yeah. And yeah. so when you do an emergency blow, you're forcing that water out and forcing air in. So now you're just filling that the front of that ship with buoyancy and it's just rising up. And of course, you know that as you the further up you go, the more the air expands. So it's you're just coming up, and the the deeper you are, the higher out of the water you're going to pop out once you get up there. Whoa, I didn't know that. Now, so so the engine doesn't really play a role then. Now, when you're hitting an emergency blow, a lot of times it's because either you're having an engine problem or a rudder problem oh. or some other kind of problem. So you're like 
emergency blow and the chief of the watch stand up and he's got these two levers that you're not going to push by accident and, 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 and just just you know like like bill's doing like a uh like two <laughs> two fists in the air like 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 i don't know star wars sand versus like like kind of motion. Oh, yeah. like, you're grabbing these two big levers forward. that are over your head and you're just punching them up okay you know and you hear and you feel instantly the the boat starts rising you hear that air rushing the tanks all the water's coming out and you are just shooting towards the surface now why wouldn't you blow the the ballast water out the stern of the ship as well like is it is it just because because you don't want to come stern first you, you don't, don't want to come it? you don't want to come stern first and you just want to get up in the front and you want your front to get up because then you you want to you want to keep the you want to keep the screw in the water oh Really? So yeah, if especially if you've got any steerage still at all, or if, uh, and if you've got any um, of the uh, engine capacity, you want the yes. screw to still be in the water. You want the uh, you you want your rudder to be in the water. Yeah, so that makes you want to come up in the front, and if you settle and you're a little high, you're still going to be able to maneuver. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So little things like that you just don't even yeah. think about. That's, and then I suppose the bow would also because you have the you called it the not the conning tower the sail. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's more for that's forward. So right. And then you have that huge bow. So I'm assuming there is more. There's just more buoyancy forward. Like, yeah. Like, and then once you get up there, yeah. um, if you're going to be on the surface anytime, then you've got to get people up in the sail because you want your lookouts up there and you want your officer of the deck up there with con- com- uh, communications back down to the okay. con. Wow, so cool. Well, I hope people are finding this interesting. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. <laughs> I don't know. kind of lost me on the little bromian. Brilliant ball. But I'm sure it's like, I just can picture like, oh my gosh, tell me more about the brilliant ball. thing about that, that's in your gyroscope. So the faster it spins, the more accurately it detects any motion wow. so think about did you ever have one of those um gyroscopes in your hand so if you they were like an old toy and you can spin the wheel and it goes up and down back and forth and you just kind of yeah, yeah. rotate it in your hand and yeah. you feel the opposing force well that's how a gyroscope works as the ship moves, it feels that force, and then it sends an electrical signal. That brilliant ball gets closer to those plate pairs, never touches them because it's in a complete vacuum, but it changes that electrostatic charge and it reads how close it's getting to those plate pairs. It's, it's ridiculous. It, I did this for a living and I think about it and it still blows my mind. <laughs> well, so do you have a favorite submarine movie? There, there was one fellow I spoke to, uh, and his what got him into submarines was Destination Tokyo, mm-hmm. which I've not seen, but I really it's on my list of movies to see. I loved Us Boat. That's my favorite U boat movie. And see, uh, I was gonna say uh, we didn't pre-plan this, but even though it's not uh, an SSBN, Das Boat is my favorite yeah. submarine movie because I've been. Um, on the Nautilus, I've been on the Bowfin a few times. I've been and I when I was on the Frank Cable, we fixed fast attacks. Now they hot rack on fast attacks. There's a lot less room. I would not want to have served on a fast attack, but I appreciate them. And <laughs> when I see Das Boat, you know, think that was true grit. You know, that was the hardest 
that was one of the hardest things that you could have done in the, in the in the military back then. I mean, you know, you got your you got your people storming the beach and you get people taking active fire, but you know, when you're getting when you're going into enemy territory in shallow water and you're getting depth charged and so many subs were destroyed yeah. during that time. And so the likelihood of you meeting your untimely demise. So Das Boat, yeah, my favorite as well. Yeah. No, it's such a it's just so it's so German. Like like they all yeah. <laughs> you know, they all spoiler alert, it's a bad ending. Yeah. <laughs> like, welcome to German war movies. If, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's really just yeah, I, I definitely want the boys to watch it. With I mean, we're, we're going to watch it someday, but mm-hmm. I'm, I am a little upset that the uh, the only character uh, named Johan kind of has a breakdown. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, dang it! This this you know fellow, but, but I mean, he's he's totally cool until then. But there's a couple of good, um, and not movies, but there's a there's a couple of really good documentaries on SSBNs. Uh, I should have looked them up before I came here, but. If you Google them, you'll find them. And if you really want to see a little bit of what life was like uh, on there, it's it's pretty awesome. But it's very different. Trident. So you know the the fast attack guys give us a hard time because we we actually have a little bit more leg room. Not that there's much, yeah. but um, they're going all over the place. They're engaging more. Uh, they're putting themselves at risk more. You know, in in enemy territory and chasing down uh, sound signatures from from other ships what SSBNs do is really important but it's not very exciting you know (laughs) now and yet you guys did have torpedoes on board I mean you had some capability well that's the thing we had Mark 48 torpedoes and those were for uh, those are defensive weapons. So, okay. So, explain. So, we only had four forward torpedo tubes. So, they're defensive weapons. If we get in a situation where we're found out, you know, we'll have to use those. But the other thing is, again, I, I know a lot of this sounds fatalistic. And I said, if we launch all of our missiles, they're going to launch a nuclear strike on us and probably destroy us. But if we survive that, <laughs> then we would go into an offensive posture and try to use some of those for uh, mark 48s but the mark 48s are there to protect us so that we can still launch missiles mark 48s are an awesome awesome weapon they they travel to 55 knots they're steerable they've got all kinds of safety procedures in place um and we have four forward tubes that can like i said those those uh, torpedoes can do some damage i was that this wouldn't have happened in real in real life, but we were at the North Canal Ridge one time, and it wasn't opening, and we're getting closer, and it's not opening. And again, we're in our we're very limited in our ability to maneuver. So big, you know. So we're heading north from Delta Pier, yeah, through the Hood Canal Bridge to go out on patrol, and you, yeah, that we, bridge has to open. It has to open. You know, we <laughs> can't go under. We it's not deep enough. Yeah. you know. And so we're getting closer and closer, and there's a point in no return where you got to go all all back full, or or else you're going to hit it. So we're getting closer and closer to this point of no return, and I have this Jo on board. He's like, Chief. He's like, What do you think we ought to do? I was like. Sorry, I think we ought to make torpedo tubes one, two, four ready in all respects, <laughs> which wasn't very helpful at the time because we were not going to blow the bridge. <laughs> so eventually, you do have reverse, right? <laughs> <laughs> eventually, they opened the bridge and, and we slowed down and we and we got through it. But I forgot 
these boats cost three billion dollars. Can't they just shell out a hundred million and build like a bridge that goes up a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I, I, like, why does the damn bridge have to open? Just and they redid the it's bridge. Pocket change. Yeah, while I was it's there too, and they, and they you don't stop it. traffic. <clears throat> There's like so many advantages. And when I first got in, it was kind of cool because you'd come through the bridge, and all the families were allowed to be on the edge of the bridge. Oh. And pre nine so, eleven. When I was on Alabama, as we would come in, our skipper would put um, these big speakers out and we'd be playing Leonard Skinner, you know, Sweet Home Alabama as we were coming through and all the families had signs and and you can smell the perfume, you know, <laughs> you know, and after 90 days at sea smelling amine, you know, it was, <clears throat> it was nice. But then of course, after 9-11, they don't let them come to the edge of the edge of the bridge opening anymore. You know, it's so fascinating. So it's fascinating talking to Navy people that were in the Navy prior to women being on board because you're the, you're, well... Fascinating. I'm like stereotyping because I've met all two of you, interviewed two of you. But that was one of the things that that Robert Armour, who I interviewed as well, he was Navy, mm. and he said, "I remember like when we had the first female pilot land on our carrier, and like just that smell, like she had perfume, or just her smell was different, mm. and like they were all the men were conscious of it. It's fascinating to me." That like they just they especially since I can't really smell too well but yeah. <laughs> but like it's just yeah he said like that was a big deal like just this smell that we never had and and, yeah. and it was so conscious to every man on board it was fascinating so it's funny that you'd say say the same thing like somebody on shore you can smell like it's oh crazy. yeah it was because even my dog could smell the amine so before you get underway there's a 30-day refit period so you're you know 30 45 days depending on what has to be done uh generally and so you're getting you're running the ship through all its motions you're both through all its motions you're getting stuff ready you're um, doing calibrations on the navigation equipment and all this stuff but when you're on the boat there's this aiming smell which is used in the uh o2 scrubbers or the burners one or the other you know and uh but it's a very distinct smell. Mm -hmm. And so when I come home from work during refit and I'd smell like that, my dog would start displaying these really sad symptoms and she'd lay by the front door and she'd whine because she knew that was like the time that I was getting ready to be gone for an extended oh. period of time. So she would smell that. And like I said, it was a very distinct smell and it wasn't super unpleasant, but it wasn't pleasant. So like when you, after 75, 90 days, get to open the hatches and smell fresh air. That's one thing in itself. But then when you get to go through the bridge, oh, yeah, you can smell all those smells that you have missed for the last three months. <laughs> what, you know, coming off, I mean, you said your longest tour was what? 107 days. 107 days. Surfacing after that point, like, what... The feel of the sun, like the the sight of color, like is, do car colors more vibrant, or is, are you more attuned to that, or is it you're more attuned to that? You know, it was funny that people don't think about, but what we found is on a submarine because it's only 563 feet long and everything is compartmentalized, oh, you don't Distance. see very dis very yeah. far, and so what would happen is we pull in, and within the first week, all these people were having accidents because they would get in their car and they. They would clip corners or and they weren't judging distance that well because they hadn't had to 
in like three months. So it's just one of those little things that, you know, it's anecdotal data and I don't think anyone's ever done a study on it, but we found that you'd come home and you have to talk to your sales, be careful, give yourself extra time, you know, to, as you're driving, extra distance in front of the person in front of you because they just weren't used to seeing further than 10, 20 feet in front of them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> And it's so hard in a study like that. It'd be hard to say how much you because you would have to account for the fact that you haven't driven for four months. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, how much is you haven't driven for four months, and how much is yeah. actual eyesight? So, but you could you could control for that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe it's just easier rather than spending millions of dollars on some stupid study. You know, just yeah. tell people to be careful. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a lot easier. Actually, that's 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 the way I do do it. <laughs> but we did we did see that and save money for that big bridge. That's yeah. Oh, oh boy. Well, gosh, I, mean, I know there's more questions that will come in my head. Oh, I remembered though. I remembered what I was going to say about the the play the B fifty two and Slim Pickens and all of that. And it was the pilot. It was the because you brought up the fact that it sounds kind of defeatist, but and then I remembered. So one of the things he said about because I asked him, you know, because there's other war movies, B-52 movies, and, you know, nuclear Holocaust movies, where they're just like, you know, I said, did you have any, you know, did you carry poison with you? Like, did you have, like, the injection thing where you had to kill yourself kind of thing? He said, no, 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 no. Like, like <laughs> we always had a plan. Like, like no mission, no matter how crazy, there was always a chance you were going to survive. Mm-hmm. We never went in thinking we were going to die. He said that just would not have been a good way, good mentality going in, and I'm sure there's many reasons f- for that. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to me that obviously you guys had the same thing, but <laughs> if certain things happen, that I mean, that's a real psychological, like that's an interesting psychological experiment. Like, oh, how would I, you know, and I, and obviously this would be highly, highly top secret if it ever, but it would be an interesting study to launch a dummy missile to have everybody except maybe the captain or maybe everybody think it was real. And launch the sucker and then just see what happens to the crew. I mean, mm. the psychological damage would probably be permanent. And so this is going to be a little people. dark, too. But uh, when we went out on 9-11, I was actually thinking about members of my crew who had belief systems that I might not want near areas that they could sabotage. Whoa. Because it gets real. It's like, if we're going to launch, there's there's a very real possibility we are going to kill hundreds of thousands of people and alter the landscape in in a geographic area. And so when you're doing your day, you're doing your job day in and day out, and there's no threat like that, everybody's fine. But when we went out, even though we were very short-staffed, you know, because a lot of the crew didn't make it back on board, I was like, there might be certain people I I don't want in the navigation center when it comes time to launch because I don't want there to be any issues with them being able to carry out their duty. Sorry, that's heavy. No, (laughs) yeah. Can't end on that note. (laughs) We're not allowed to end on that note. But it's 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 an important thing to think about, though. Mm -hmm. It really is. Yeah. Whew. Whew. Well, and, and I mean, that's what you got. That, 
it's, it's just wild and you were on those subs it's so crazy as a little kid I was just like let's take this like, like I don't know I just remember making no, I, I can't make models I suck at making things but mm. but like I always love looking at the picture of that big typhoon sub and and um just always found them fascinating. I think had I joined the military, I would have probably tried to be a submariner. I really think that would have been my thing. I don't know. Probably just from the games. I really liked it. Like, I I, I still play, you know, like World War II submarine simulators. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of them kind of feel like work, like you're calculating yeah. <laughs> calculate trajectories. And, you know, it can get as complex as you like. And uh, uh, it's kind of like, gosh, this is kind of like my job. Like, like when yeah. I'm, you know, because you know, when you're captaining, you're calculating all those mm-hmm. things. And, you know, just kind of in the back of your head, like, okay, how where I need to be at this time to do this? And except, and, you know, but, but yeah, th- that, that whole concept. So when you guys were going out, like you said, you got no news. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're, yeah, I mean, it's not about the politics. It's not about anything. You're just, you're just a tool in the, you're, you're a cog in the machine. Yeah. When we got our 40 word, um, family grams, we would get, you know, some basic headlines of the news and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But like, uh, when we went out after nine eleven, we did, we were kind of in a news blackout for a little bit. How in touch are you with Submariners now? Like, do you know what? Things were like, have you heard stories about what things were like in COVID? Did COVID affect the subs at all? I mean, you're kind of going out for months at a time. It's like, either you got COVID or you don't. Like, yeah, I have. Are you, you know, talking about it? I don't I've been out of the Navy now for, I retired in 2012. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kept in touch with uh, some folks, but most of the other people I kept in touch with are retired too. And uh, when we had women on board, I, I kind of lost touch with a lot of guys. And I love women. I believe they have a very important place in the Navy. They've got skill sets that we need, and just as they can fight and train just as hard as we can. The problem is on a submarine, there's very limited space. There's limited facilities. There's only two heads for the crew. And so like on a 160-member crew, you have maybe 15 officers and 15 chiefs. So that's 30. Now you've got 130 enlisted guys. And you have two heads, you know, in birthing. So it's like the logistics of it would be really difficult. And when they designed submarines, they designed them to work. And they designed all the material and the machinery and the ventilation and everything that they needed to have the machine work. And then they put the people in. So as far as birthing and things go, it's very tight. But also when you're working on gear, there are times when I was working with people on a piece of gear in the outboard and you can't tell where one person begins and the other one ends because you're sometimes on top of each other reaching mm-hmm. in one person holding the component the other one working on it and i just always felt like it'd be really hard to do that with women on board and not be accused of I, i'd be worried because you i mean like i said you're like slammed up against someone and, and then the other thing is, and this is just human nature, if you've got 160 men on board for three months and you introduce maybe 10 women, uh, it's just human nature. I was like, uh, I can't imagine how that works. Um, now, when I got to the Frank Cable, I had men and women working for me. There was a much bigger spread. There were a lot more areas, space, you know, um, there was a lot more space and area for people to spread out and, and it wasn't an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but on submarines, I always thought, well, that's, this is going to be really tough. 
There was an interesting argument I heard once or read about. I think it was actually one of the, not not a John Grisham, but it was that style of book, you know, the popular mm-hmm. kind of, I call them airport books. But uh, it was, uh, so it was one of these like fantasy, not fantasy, but ah, what am I saying? The point is, in this one book, they, they had an interesting point, which was, because you said yourself, the limitation is the food. It's the resources. Mm-hmm. It, it's really the food. What it comes down to, yeah. that's your ultimate limitation. The people and the food, period. Those, those are your two yeah. limiting factors. The argument was women, as we all know, are like statistically significantly smaller than men. You know, they, they require fewer calories. Like there's, there's some advantage. They're smaller. Like mm-hmm. you could have, you could have more space allotted for food. And they require less food. Like so there's some something to be said about having women on as submariners just for that sheer mm-hmm. reason statistical reason alone. Well, one thing is what what would you th- say to having like an all female sub submarine crew? I I think I think women are just as capable as men as making those decisions and doing that work and learning the skill set. Um and so yeah, I'd I'd be totally fine with that. But I will tell you that when I was in they had a couple of times where they took women out who were real advocates for women should be on submarines and we should have all the opportunities that men have. And I will tell you that a couple of times when those when those patrols ended, the women came off the submarines going, we don't belong down here. Oh, no. <laughs> the... The but, atmosphere, but as in with with a bunch of dudes, like yeah, the atmosphere know, can become subhuman. Gosh, it's just a, and when you so this is the thing when when you're getting close to like two weeks out where you're coming home, you have to make a conscious a conscious effort. You're like, all right, I got to start thinking like a functioning member of society. <laughs> <laughs> I got how do I relate? to civilized people again because like I said when you're when you're underway with 160 guys and you're just finding ways to poke each other and make sure that you're protected because it's like this the uh, navigation center where I worked on a one submarine it was nicknamed the uh, shark tank mm. because of, like if they smell blood in the water they're going to eat their own no <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> So, so, but you were on subs when women were starting to come on board. No, oh, you were not. Okay, no. So that's very, very recent then. Yeah, I, I got out of the navy in two thousand. Are, are women allowed on subs still? Is that yeah, there are, there are women okay. on subs, but it's in limited numbers, and it's usually officers and chiefs because it's easier to manage the smaller communities there. And uh, no, I, I retired in two thousand twelve, and I was on my last submarine, which was the USS Alaska. The end of 2006 when I went to Guam to be so, on a tender. So, so the ballistic missile submarines are all named after states? Most of them. There's the Henry M. Jackson. I think there's one or two others now that uh, aren't. But, yeah, they were mostly states. Did um, Now, you were saying two weeks prior to coming home, you had to kind of sh- have a shift in your mentality. I know, you know, when I sailed on the Viking ship, we, we sailed from the North, uh, across the North Sea. It took us about six weeks stopping along the way. But... The last, like, I just remember the last night we had, it was only six weeks, but, well, only, but, I mean, it's a long time, but, but, mm. but the last night, like, things went, every, everybody just went nuts. Like, we had a big party, mm-hmm. and everybody was drinking, and just, like, 
fights broke out. Like, like it was just, it was, <laughs> not, you know, and half the crew were, were women. So, but, but like, I'll never forget one of my shipmates who, I mean, we loved her to death. Uh, me and this other big, big Viking who I, I, I uh, he, he's, he's amazing. Alex is like, you picture a Viking, you're picturing Alex. Like, yeah. this big, big guy with, you know, long, like, long, you know, like these, these big, bushy, blonde eyebrows and strawberry blonde hair and this red beard and huge. And always, <laughs> always talks like he's perpetually drunk. You know, you know, and that's just like his normal voice. And and like he and I were his best buds, and we're we're sitting there talking, and we're smiling. This one one girl comes up, and she just looks at both of us, and and, and like and she, she was my buddy, like she was actually like if I fell overboard, like we were supposed to find each other, kind of thing. And she just looks at us, smiles, and takes our heads and smashed them together. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you son! And then like she's trying to wail on us, and two people guys are pulling her back, I'm like what the what was that about? <laughs> you know, she had no recollection of it the next day. But it was like just there was all this pent up everything that just had to get out and, yeah. and it came out in the worst way and so I guess what I'm asking is in my long-winded way is like were the either a did those tensions come out like after months and months and months and it was like everybody just held on to the last second and then sometimes it would release or was it something where like all the officers are like this is going to happen you need to be prepared for this don't act this way like we're, we're holding the ship together until we get home yeah, no, it was more like it was more germane and natural. The the tensions would come out and people would get on each other's nerves, but everybody was trying to be a little bit more human. And two weeks before we got home, so there's like I said, there's no doctors, there's no barbers on board. So two weeks before we got home, we would get home, everybody would get a haircut because the difference between a good haircut and a bad haircut is two weeks. <laughs> 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 so you'd make all these preps just to reintegrate into society because I'm telling you, and, and maybe not every submarine will tell you this, but when those hatches shut and you, and you submerge, the societal norms change. It's yeah. just different. It and it's a self protective measure, and um, things just get strange. But uh, everybody realizes on their way back, it's like people are going to accept it. Behavior. So we start rehumanizing ourselves. <laughs> so, so what was homecoming like? Pre nine eleven, there'd be people on the on the pier just waiting and uh there'd be signs and there'd be banners and 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 it was it was awesome but i never wanted to be one of the first people off the board because off the boat because what would happen is as we would get closer to shore we couldn't use the tdu anymore we couldn't dump the trash overboard oh so basically it was like the first people who got off the ship would have to carry the trash. I was like, the first time my family sees me, I'm not going to be carrying a bag of trash. So I'll be one of the last people on board. Um, my son was three months old when I went out to sea on a sub. And when I came home, he was six months old. And so it was bittersweet because I saw my wife and she's holding my son and he's like, twice the size he was he's like a, a totally different kid um, but he didn't know me you know and he didn't want to come to me and that's the hard part when you come home and you know some some guys had wives who had babies while they were gone so they were meeting their first their kid for the first time on the pier um, I had a son who just didn't know me and didn't want to come near me you know so there's there's those kind of sacrifices so the homecoming can be really sweet and awesome 
But uh, when you've got little kids, it can also be a little bit difficult too. Uh, and then you've got to reintegrate with the family and figure out the roles because you know you've got a wife who's now who's been the head of household for three months, and then you're back and there's there's a shift and so and you're doing this every three months. Wow. Yeah. So. Damn it, Bill. I was trying to end on a happy <laughs> note. I was trying really hard to end on a happy note. Bill. Well, like, that, that wasn't uh, unhappy. It's just a little dose of reality. reality. All right. And then they all died. <laughs> <laughs> the whole world got nuked. Oh, boy. I don't know how to end this. All right. Well, Bill, I, 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 can't, I can't end on like a doom and gloom <laughs> note. Uh, is is there any story you could tell me, like something that's, I don't know, just kind of like happy or... or you know what I mean? So, so post submarines. When I um, when I got done on the three tridents, I I got orders to the Frank Cable, which is a sub tender out of Guam, and um, we had a shop that was right off the helo deck. So every morning, rain, shine, no matter what the weather was, I'd grab a cup of coffee and I'd go out on that helo deck and I would just enjoy my first cup of coffee. I'd get there early, and I remember. One morning, this uh, this petty officer comes out and he goes, "Chief," and it was it was raining, it was windy, it was coming <laughs> sideways, it was just crap weather, and I'm standing out there. Just, I was really enjoying my cup of coffee. He's like, "Chief, what are you doing out here? Why do you come out here every morning, regardless of what the weather is?" He goes, "The weather right now is so crappy," and I was like, "After spending 14 patrols on submarines, any weather is good weather." I just loved being out, breathing real air and rain, shine, whatever. That first cup of coffee was so good when you could just be breathing normal air. <laughs> Bill, thank you so much. This has been like fascinating for me. I hope it's been interesting for other people. Uh, I know we're going to get a million hits from that Jarmate ball thing. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'll have to look that up. Well, um, I enjoy seriously. talking to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I, uh, like I said, when you're in the middle of it, you don't think it's all that interesting. So when you're like, uh, I want to talk to you for a couple hours, like, I don't really know that much to say, but, <laughs> but thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, well, everybody, I hope you enjoyed this talk with, uh, with uh, Chief Bill Larson. And yeah, support the podcast if you can. Spread the word. That'd be the greatest way to support it. And uh, definitely, if you are in front of a nuclear ballistic missile submarine, you should probably get out of their way. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, I hope everybody enjoyed this. Wishing everybody out there fair winds in the following sea.